The following podcast contains mature language and spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Marvel Unlimited is so badass. It's so badass. Uh, you're on the tablet then. Go to Captain America Comics number one. Captain America. Do you know it's it's a testament to comic books today that it'll have Captain America and it'll say 1941 to whatever, right? Uh-huh. And then all these other stupid fucking series, Captain America, Captain America and the Falcon, Captain America and the Mighty Avengers, Captain America, 65th anniversary, Captain America and Crossbones, Captain America and Hawkeye, Captain America and Namor, Captain America and Falcon, mm-hmm. Captain America and the First 13, Captain America and Secret Avengers, Captain America, all of these are from 2009 through present. Right. It's like, what the fuck, dude? Well, in defense of Marvel, a lot of the ancillary stuff that they made prior to the early late 2000s isn't on the app yet. So it's not that they didn't make that stuff earlier on, but they haven't all made their way to the app. We're all sure. that stuff from that point on where it's all going on there now. So you're going to catch every bit of that. But I do think it sucks that you've got Captain America comics running from 1940 until 1948, 49, whatever it is. And then Captain America comics volume two runs five issues in the 50s. Captain America Comics or Captain America Volume Three runs from 1960 something until 2001 or some shit like that. 96. And 96, and then from then on, it's like here's the next volume two years after the first one. You know, the, the next one. You know, it's just, and nowadays they practically renumber them once a year. So that's the lame part. Mm, I'm not seeing the 1940s cap. Oh, there it is. Way it's down. just Captain Got America it. Comics. Yeah, they go by alphabetical order. So, all right, you said number one. Number one. Captain America. Case number one. Beat Captain America, USA, 1941. As the ruthless warmongers of Europe focus their eyes on a peace-loving America, the youth of our country heeds the call to arm for defense. But great as the danger of foreign attack is the threat of invasion from within, the dreaded fifth column. It was easy joining the army with the forged papers. Now to carry out the Fuhrer's plans. Yeah, everything is in readiness. wave of sabotage and treason paralyzes the vital defense industries while in Washington. But I tell you, Mr. President, there's no stopping these vermin. They're so firmly entrenched in our ranks that I hesitate to give confidential reports to even the most trusted aid. An army spider with spies is, is useless. What would you suggest, gentlemen? A character out of the comic books? Perhaps the human torch in the army would solve our problem. But seriously, gentlemen, something is being done. I neglected to tell you, because, well, I wasn't sure. But now, please send in Mr. Grover. Gentlemen, may I introduce J. Arthur Grover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who has a plan that may interest you. At the FBI chief's request, the army men disguise themselves in civilian clothes and follow them through a secret door in the waiting car. But just being cautious, gentlemen. This plan must be protected by the utmost security. They are driven to a shabby tenement district and pull up at a sinister-looking curio shop. The shop is merely a blind behind which our secret is being protected. The door slowly opens, and a gnarled bony hand reaches for a waiting automatic, then recognizing the visitors, replaces the firearm. Nothing to worry about. These men are high-ranking army officials. 
I'm glad to see you, sir. I think you won't be disappointed this time. The formula has been found. They are waiting for you now. The officials follow the old shopkeeper up a musty stairway through a maze of decrepit rooms and stop at a heavily barred door, which opens at a whispered command. Mr. Grover, we're hoping you will come. The astonishment enter to find a surprisingly modern laboratory. The army officials gasp in startled amazement as the wrinkled old shopkeeper sheds her wizened features to become an astonishingly beautiful young woman. The young lady behind the rubber mask is X-13, one of our most trusted agents. Grover and his pretty agent silently motion the army men to seat in a small observation room as the scientists reveal the fruits of their experiment. A side door opens and a frail young man steps into the laboratory. Don't be afraid, son. You are about to become one of America's saviors. Calmly, the young man allows himself to be inoculated with a strange, seething liquid. There, it is done. Now to watch the reaction. Observe this young man closely. Today, he volunteered for army service and was refused because of his unfit condition. His chance to serve his country is gone. Little does he realize that the serum coursing through his blood is rapidly building his body and brain tissues until his stature and intelligence increase an amazing degree. The people in the observation room shape in wonder at the scene before them. Oh, look! <laughs> he changed! It works. It works. It is working. There's power surging through those growing muscles. Millions of cells forming at incredible speed. Behold! The crowning achievement of all my years of hard work. The first of a corps of super agents whose mental and physical abilities will make them a terror to spies and savages. We shall call you Captain America soon. Because like you, America shall gain the strength and the will to safeguard our shores. But the hand of democracy's enemy reaches deep into the ranks of America's high officials. One of the army men witnessing the demonstration is in the pay of Hitler's Gestapo. I'm afraid that this is one experiment that must never reach its final test. Death to the dogs of democracy! Oh! Professor Reinstein! What? The spy's muffled gun speaks again before the group can recover from its surprise. The vial containing the valuable serum shatters into a thousand pieces. His treachery discovered, the spy turns his fire on the infuriated group in the observation room. Look out, Mr. Grover! Suddenly, the enemy's eyes widen in horror as a terrible vengeance in the form of Captain America leaps toward him. Come on out, you skunk! Half-crazed with fear and pain, the spy stumbles into the laboratory equipment in a frantic effort to escape the terrific beating. He becomes enmeshed in powerful coils of wire which, like bands of death, cause a million volts of electricity to burn out his life. Nothing left of him but charred ashes, a fate he well deserved. Although the Wonder Serum has been destroyed, its first creation, Captain America, becomes a powerful force in the battle against spies and saboteurs. Who is Captain America? A whole nation thrills to his daring exploits. His name becomes a symbol of courage to millions of Americans, and a byword of terror in the shadow world of the spies. At Cap Lehigh of the United States Army, Bucky Barnes, mascot of the regiment, approaches Private Steve Rogers. Oh, Steve! Steve! Look at this! Captain America's done it again! Boy, how'd I like to meet that guy. I wish I could be like him. Maybe you can, Bucky. Maybe you can. 
That same night, when Bucky visits Steve's tent, he makes a startling discovery. What in? Hello? Steve! I came down to... Why, you're Captain America! You little rascal. I ought to tan your hide. I guess you got me dead to rights. I am Captain America. Gosh! Gee whiz golly! I... I never thought! From now on, we must both share the secret together. That means you're my partner, Bucky. And so Bucky's dream is fulfilled as he fights side by side with Captain America against the vicious elements who seek to overthrow the U.S. government. Here is how you can become a member of Captain America's Sentinels of Liberty and join Captain America in his war against the spies and enemies in our midst who threaten our very independence. Send 10 cents to timely publications, 330 West 42nd Street, New York, New York, to cover cost of mailing and receive a real official badge and membership card. Diablo Frank. Famed cartoonist, writer, and editorialist Jules Pfeiffer wrote in his 1965 book, The Great Comic Book Heroes. World War II is greeted by comic books with a display of public patriotism and a sigh of private relief. There is no telling what would have become of the superheroes had they not been given a real enemy. Domestic crime fighting had become a bore. One could sense our muscled wondermen growing restless in their protracted beatings up of bank robbers, gang overlords, and mad scientists. Domestic affairs were dead as a gut issue. Superheroes wanted a hand in foreign policy. The IQ of villains dropped markedly as the war progressed. Whatever there used to be of a plot was replaced by action, great leaping gobs of it, breaking out of frames and splashing off the page. This was the golden age of violence. Its two prime exponents, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. The team of Simon and Kirby brought anatomy back into comics. Not that other artists didn't draw well. The level of craftsmanship had risen alarmingly since I'd begun to compete. But no one could put quite as much anatomy into a hero as Simon and Kirby. Muscles stretched magically, foreshortened shockingly. Legs were never less than four feet apart when a punch was thrown. Every panel was a population explosion. Casts of thousands, all fighting, leaping, falling, crawling. They peopled their panels with Cassius Clays. Speed was the thing. Rocking, uproarious speed. Blue Bolt. The Sandman. The Newsboy Legion. The Boy Commandos, and best of all, Captain America and Bucky, like an Errol Flynn war movie, almost always taken from secret files, almost always preceded by the legend, now it can be told. Count Trumpula. The origin story? I like it. I, it's one of those things where you have to keep on coming back to this idea of why couldn't the serum be replicated? And then they often cheat and do have the serum be replicated, and then it's usually corrupted in some way. But I like it. It feels... For being a Golden Age story, it does feel progressive and modern. What separates Captain America from the other Marvel heroes is that he feels like he's of a different time. Because he volunteered, because that story was something that he worked for. Because this power, even though it was given to him by science and in part there was an accident when in how the, the creator was killed, it feels like this superpower is something that he earned because of the strength of his character and his dedication and his personal spirit. Which is different 
different than most of the Marvel Age heroes who get their powers because they stumble ass backwards into a power, and it separates. And I think that's the difference between a lot of the Golden Age heroes is that they are self-made men. They become heroic because of their good decisions and because of their good choices, and they are striving to be better. Whereas Stan and Jack found this particular niche that worked really well for them, which is what if these are just cosmic accidents that the people have to deal with, and that melodrama is what drives the stories. It was a terrific formula. It revolutionized the industry. But I like Cap being the outsider for that formula. He is of a different generation. That's not how he acquired his powers. In my message board days, they would always want to talk about which hero would you take from DC and give it to Marvel? Which hero would you take from Marvel and give it to DC? And usually it came down to people wanted Batman in the Marvel Universe and Captain America in the DC Universe. And the problem is the Marvel Universe won't support Batman because Batman has become the end-all be-all of DC Comics, even greater than Superman. Mm-hmm. And the Marvel Universe is too egalitarian. At some point, Batman would have to fall for somebody else because the Marvel Universe won't allow that sort of alpha figure that dominates everybody. Whereas Cap in the DC Universe would just be another member of the JSA. He makes sense only because he stands apart from all the other Marvel heroes. He is the only true Golden Age character they have because Namor was not a Golden Age character. He was an anti-hero well before that was a thing that happened in comics. And the Human Torch doesn't matter anymore and he was also an anti-hero. He works in that universe specifically because he doesn't necessarily feel like a part of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's framework. Right, yeah. Cap in the DC Universe would be boring because he would be just like all the other DC heroes, like you were saying. I think I was listening to the Relatively Geeky podcast, and Professor Allen was talking about the Amalgam comics, the Amalgam line that came out a couple decades ago. Those comics never appealed to me. I always thought the, the concept looked really dumb because of who they put together. Doctor Strange Fate. Okay, we're putting Doctor Strange together with Doctor Fate. Well, those characters have the same basic concept. They're the masters of magic. When you put them together, you just get another master of magic. It's still pretty much, even though he's different, he's still pretty close to the same as Doctor Strange or Doctor Fate. And when you put the Challengers of the Unknown with the Fantastic Four, why would you mix them together when they're basically the same concept? If you're going to do something together, put Superman with his diametric opposite. Put him together with, uh, like, Jubilee. (laughs) <laughs> like try try doing something like that just mm-hmm. because that would at least be unique basically it acknowledges the derivative nature of both universes how they repeat yeah. themselves they did a trading card set and I like the trading card set better than any of the comic books because seeing the two similar concepts mash together in one image is alright it's kind of cool to see how they play off each other but when you try to tell an actual story you're right you're going to boil it down to its very essence Wong's going to hang out with Inza or something along those lines mm-hmm. it's the same old thing it doesn't work very well as a story sort of a nice little drawing which is all over the internet these days anyway, so there's nothing special about an algorithm at all anymore. Mr. Fix-It. Actually, out of all of them, I find his origins kind of the most fascinating. Out of all the origins? Or out of the Marvel? Yeah, or? Well, of course. Well, the cool thing is because, you know, I'm a huge Hulk fan. They're based on science. It's not a Norse god, and they weren't born mutants, and they weren't hit with some radio... I mean, well, even the Fantastic Four, it's the science. The Atomic Age type shit. That's such a cool period. I personally love that 50s atomic error weird universe. I'm a big Fallout fan, the game. And they have that game where it's captured in this 50s universe and they, and the bombs actually go off. And then so you have this creepiness to it. I don't know. I just, I've always liked that time period, the 50s. Why well, I like the 50s is because of all the social repression, the sense of everything being nice and clean and perfect and orderly. And under the surface, well, there's the, all the fucked up sexual stuff and the racism. But yeah, that's what I liked about it. Yeah. It's so artificial. It's so 
fake when you look at it, like the whole nucleus of a family, like all oh, that's bullshit. It's all bullshit. But it's so cool that they created this perception. Capitalism is this perception of this is what we see ourselves as. And we're going to use science to make ourselves better. We're going to create the perfect soldier. So it's always almost like America saw themselves as weak and they were going to use science to propel themselves ahead of everyone else. The Hulk was the same thing. He was going to propel the weapon was going to propel us ahead. And so I always like that concept. I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, but it does occur to me. What if scrawny Steve Rogers was America during the Depression, during its leanest times, its weakest times, most vulnerable? And the war yeah. effort is what turned America into the superpower for the yeah. American century. So well, I can kind of see they, that metaphor they, there. They take science, they create a serum, and you take this weak American economy, American dream. You pump it up full of drugs because that's what that's what it is. It's a drug. And all of a sudden you have this super soldier. Now, the thing that was cool about Cap was even though he had all this power, he still had that Boy Scout mentality. He never deviated from that, which I've always liked. I always respected that. Even in the movies, the comics, I don't like Cap whenever, like, I know you used to get nuts when I would tell you, it'd be cool if Cap had a bastard son. I like the fucked up thing, but the one thing I have to respect is Cap was always the straight line. You knew where he stood. Well, you, know, you did like uh, the bit from Ultimates where it turned out that that Red Skull was his kid, though. Yeah. Well, the Ultimates, they fucked up because the world around him was so messed up that he came off almost, I don't want to say racist, but yes, he's stuck in time, but his mentality never evolved. He's actually fighting against what he fought for, which I always thought was kind of trippy in the Ultimate world. In the regular Marvel Universe, Cap, he was your solid rock. You could go to Cap, and if Cap said it was going to get done, it got done. He would push himself to the limits to get it done. So I always liked that. I thought Cap was just a cool character. Great uniform, and the shield was cool as shit. I'm a legal machine. I think Cap has a decent origin. They recently, I think it was Brian Cronin on Comic Book Resources for the Comic Should Be Good section. He did his top five comic book origins, and Captain America was sixth place. He was the honorary mention. Number four. Five was Iron Man. Number okay. four was, I believe, Superman. Number three, shit. I know number two was Spider Man, and number one was Batman. Mm, okay. Who was the number? Shit, I can't remember. So Doctor anyway, oh, Doctor Strange. Yeah, actually, Doctor Strange. Yeah. So I think it was Iron Man, and then either Superman or Doctor Strange. Uh, wait, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Superman. I got, I got it right here. I got it right. Okay. Um. Yep. Yeah, six Cap. Five Iron Man. Four Superman. Was there a page change I gotta do? Yeah. Did you say Superman was four? I thought you said he was okay. Three is Doctor Strange. Two is Spider-Man. One Batman. Yeah, I didn't realize that Strange outranked Superman. That's a pretty bold assertion. I mean, that kind of goes by what we've said in this podcast. Though. I, well, hey, I've been the guy who's been saying Doctor Strange has a great origin for quite a while now. I haven't reread the Lee Ditko version in a while, so I don't know if it's better than the Thomas Atkins one that I tend to prefer, just because of historically that's the one I read the first, and and I've got the actual comic book up. So, hey, what do we think about that list? Do you think that Cap has the sixth best origin? Should he be higher? Should he be lower? What? I think um, I think six is good. I don't think it's as good as Iron Man's. I don't think it's as, comp- as compelling. Yeah, but and th- it's also if this were nineteen. 19- 41 maybe that's totally different but uh we all got together we read the iron man origin and it was really freaking good and we all really enjoyed it we were all surprised at how good it was today spy i mean superman's i guess is uh do you give it you give it credit for how early on it was right well that i just i think it is a good origin though i think that is one that works extremely well because of the simplicity and the biblical allegories it's very functional that was one of the first superhero origins i ever read because i had the big superman treasury edition that had that in it and it is a very effective very simple origin it's not as involved as some of the other ones but i think it's, yeah. it works very well and it's the first of the origins so you have to give it points just for existing in a vacuum essentially and then you got dr strange's where he was such a shithead before and then it kind of flips on you yeah I, I obviously i love that origin to death and i do think it's one of the best comic book origins ever so i don't have a problem with that 
of course, Sp- Spider-Man is a classic. Yeah, that's where I start to have a problem because Spider-Man should easily be number one. Without a doubt, without question, I can't believe that anybody would think that that was the second best origin instead of the first. I mean, it's got everything Batman's has, right? Actually, it's so much better than Batman's origin. I think Batman's origin sucks, honestly. Pretty much straight out of the pulps. There's not a lot to it, especially in the first telling of it. Boy's parents get killed in an alley. He cries. He goes and trains. He becomes Batman. And the worst part is the stupid freaking, I must become uh, something to strike fear in the hearts of superstitious criminals, whatever the hell line is. And the bat comes fluttering in the window. That's it. I shall become a bat. It's dumb. I hate that origin. <laughs> and the thing with Batman, too, is everything that I like about Batman's origin comes from later editions. Batman's origin, I, st- I still think you've got the perfect telling of his origin yet, but you keep having to add stuff to the origin to make it work better, to make it make sense even. That's part of the problem. With Superman, you don't have to add anything to Superman's origin. It's all right there. It's really simple, but it's very effective. Batman, there's so many leaps you have to make just to get to Batman. I honestly would have issues with it being in the top five, but it would, if it's in the top five, it should be at the very back end because it's just not that good. I can see that. I, I, I guess I didn't realize the bat part of it was so weak until I just... They have the, the page here, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, he literally just sees a bat. He goes, oh, I'll become a bat. It wasn't like he saw bats when his parents were killed or something like right. that. Right, or, well, the thing that they, they've started using, I think it started with Frank Miller, where he finds the bat cave as a child. That instills in him that fear of bats. But honestly, especially if you're trying to think of something specific to strike fear to the hearts of your enemies, unless you have your own disposition toward bats, you do a lot better than bats. Bats, especially if you have any experience with them, aren't that scary. They're smaller than mice. They bite you. They can maybe give you rabies, but it's not that likely to happen. They're skittish. They can't see in the outside of the dark. They're not that intimidating. They're not that impressive. No, bats creep people out. I guess, but a snake would be way scarier than a bat would be. I guess that's true. That's why they have all those snake-themed villains. I guess he is really the only bat-themed guy, right? Maybe is Vermin a bat, or is he a rat? No, he's a rat. Baron Blood? He's a vampire. Vampires are associated with bats, so if he were a vampire, then it would make more sense, but he's not. How about Daredevil? (laughs) Daredevil's pretty good. He's bitten by a radioactive panhandler. No, that's not what I'm saying. Daredevil's (laughs) origin's pretty good. Oh, no, it's it's a pretty subtle, well, but that's another one, though, where I like the setup, but here's the reason why Spider-Man's origin should be number one. Nobody has ever improved upon it. That first story was told in 1960-whatever by Lee and Ditko, and every time they try to add anything to that story, it makes it less good. The writing is perfect, the art is perfect, every beat that you need is right there for you. You've got the O. Henry twist. It's just an absolutely perfect origin. Of all the ones that are in the list, you can't fix it. You can't make it better. It's already perfect. You can't improve on perfection. Whereas with Batman's origin, for instance, it gets better every time you add new stuff to it. It gets better, but the thing is, is there's so many different tellings and so many different variations on it that it's kind of cumbersome because which elements do you keep, which ones do you throw away? The origin has gotten so big and so long, it's an epic story unto itself. It's not that precise, giving this character in a nutshell kind of story. And none of the other origins are nearly as good as Spider-Man's about getting it right the first time. Everything you need is just right there to get that character, to make him work. I mean, basically the entire Marvel Universe is built on the setup to, to Spider-Man. Everything that, be, that everybody identifies with Marvel Comics is from that Spider-Man story. More so than the Fantastic Four, the entire Marvel Universe is built on that one Spider-Man story. Okay. No, I agree. It's excellent. Uh, let me see. Silver Surfers is pretty good. Yeah, I like Silver Surfers. Thor's is whack. I'm not a big fan of... I don't, I don't even really... What is it? Don Blake finds the stick in a cave when the cave yeah. guys are attacking. That's yeah. not good. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we're forgetting somebody's. Oh, there's there's lots of origins out there. What I do want to say, though, is I don't actually think Captain America's origin is that great. Okay. He's way too passive. You've got all this story about the saboteurs, and then the Reinstein later on, Erskine, is working on the formula, and the government's all involved, and you're like, 
three quarters of the way through the story before Steve Rogers is even introduced. He hardly has any lines, especially in the original origin story. They don't tell you a lot about who he is. They do a better job in the 1960s version where they explain that, you know, he, he, he was 4F and he was patriotic and he really wanted to serve his country. But he doesn't have a lot to do in this one and it feels super rushed because they jump straight from Super Soldier Serum to him being Captain America and then Bucky is even introduced in that first story. It's too much. It's too busy and there's not enough of Steve Rogers in a story that's supposed to be about that character. Okay, so well then I guess there's kind of two ways to look at it. There's the origin itself of you take the scrawny American, you give him the injection, now he's Captain America. The person who gave him the injection's killed, so now he's the only one left to save the United States in World War II. That taken as a whole is a pretty good origin. Actually reading it? Okay, I mean, I, to me, I guess that's kind of two different things, I suppose. And you're right, I guess a lot of it, there are so many different retcons and fleshing out later on that maybe sometimes people mix that up with the original origin. So maybe that's what it is, too. I, I, I'm projecting what I know of Cap's origin today as being Cap's origin. So well, if they didn't really go into as much of who Steve Rogers was, then yeah, I guess that would not make it as a powerful origin as you would think it would be. Well, and the truth is, I've read a lot of the different variations on it they've had in the comics, and I honestly think that the best telling of Captain America's origin is in the movie. I think it yeah. does an excellent job of capturing who Steve Rogers is and the whole of the character across the decades, so you have a real sense of him. Because if you don't care about the actual hero, then why should you care about the costume? And I like, too, how they incorporated Agent X-13 into his story and made it her story too without her overwhelming anything mm-hmm. and using her as a means to get to know the actual hero of Steve Rogers. I think the movie does an excellent job with that origin, probably more so than any place else I've ever seen. Okay. But no, you I, still, I, but it's you, great. Yeah. It's great. But I guess I haven't read enough of his flat out origins to compare him. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I could see that it's, it's, uh, you're, you're right. They really, they do a really good job of driving home who Steve Rogers is, what his motivations are, how nerdy and inept he is. They do a good job of making him be such a good guy you know what mm. i mean like steve rogers is a good dude he's got Even the soul with the... without the physique what he's got the soul of the hero he just doesn't have the physique correct. he just needed that one person to believe in him and help him get to a place where he could do the most good for people correct yeah it's good stuff yeah which is actually part of the reason why spider-man origin is so great is because here's another scrawny nerdy guy who is given this extraordinary power and then he uses it to become a bully and beat up the same kind of athletes that beat him up and to make money and to make a big name for himself and he doesn't <laughs> immediately become a hero it takes that tragic turn to make him realize why he was given those powers in the first place. Exactly. Where Cap and Steve Rogers was just waiting for that opportunity, and then he was going to make the most of it and do the most good for everybody. Yeah, so if the origin rushes through it and cuts out all the stuff that makes him identifiable, then yeah, you're right. It, it's a little weak. No, sorry, they don't make heroes like Captain America anymore. But, Mr. Jameson, I thought you hated masked crime fighters more than spinach. Get this, Parker! Cap isn't a mask menace like that Spider-Man weirdo. He's a real American hero. Maybe the greatest hero this nation has had since Herbert Hoover. Oh, well, I remember Cap back during World War II and how he almost won the war single-handedly. Why, Jonah, you sound like Cap was a boyhood idol of yours. He still is, Robbie. In 1970s, the Steranko History of Comics, Volume 1, the titular James Steranko wrote, Captain America bursts like a thunderbolt into the melee of the comic world, overwhelming his existing brotherhood of superheroes with furious urgency. He premiered full-blown in his own book, April 1941, delivering a smashing right to Hitler's jaw on the cover, underscoring with implicit imagery the fervor of American discontent. Epitomizing both the grandiose flamboyancy of superheroes and the flag-waving spirit of nationalism, 
Captain America was the consummate chauvinist and the most absolute of certain successes. Enlisting in the Army, Steve Rogers is stationed at Camp Lehigh, where young mascot Bucky Barnes discovers Rogers' other identity, a feat which inexplicably entitles him to become Cap's partner. Army life is rounded out by the irascible Sergeant Duffy, whose favorite pastime is condemning Private Rogers to peeling potatoes, and Betty Ross tossed in as the token female of the strip. The pulp formula was applied with all the subtlety of an exploding buzz bomb. Ordinary run-of-the-mill punching bag brutes and lemon-yellow oriental ancients just weren't good enough. Villains had to be wizened grotesqueries with gnarled hands and faces, dripping jowls and foam-flecked fangs. A legion of hideous monstrosities sprang up to populate the pages of Timely's parvenu success. And above everything stood the immaculate figure of Captain America, infallible, majestic in his glistening uniform of red, white, and blue, supreme in shirt of chain mail, buccaneer boots, and winged helmet. Those that were critical of his two-dimensional character failed to grasp the true implication of his being. Steve Rogers never existed, except perhaps as an abstract device for the convenience of storytelling. Captain America was not an embodiment of human characteristics but a pure idea he was not a man but all men not a being but a cumulative god that symbolized the inner reality of man he was the american truth the face unrevealed behind the mask was ours the shield was a visual metaphor for 200 years of democratic freedom the backbone behind it all was the growing defense effort and the sinew and stamina 16,353,659 fighting men in the service of their country more than any other fictional creation, Captain America represented the ideological duel between good and evil. Upon examination, it is an archetype of opposing forces locked in a death struggle, almost mythical in its simplicity. And this, in fact, is what the comic hero is all about. Cap was an American manifestation of an American art form. Did the Germans have a lieutenant Nazi or the Japs a super Tojo? The most immediate problem, then, was to give Cap an opponent worthy of his stature. Theseus had the Minotaur. Beowulf had Grendel. Siegfried had his dragon. And Captain America? The Red Skull. Spawned from the Nazi terror, he too found his malevolent way into the premiere issue. Like his adversary, the Red Skull was not a man, but evil incarnate. The figment of a nightmare suddenly manifest in the real, ordinary world of comics. He was to return again and again over a period of 30 years, never dying. His immortality proving conclusively his nature as a non-human entity. He was the ultimate vision of anarchistic evil. Malice, murder, hatred, fear and revenge ever rallied around him. Cadaverous and repelling with his crimson headpiece. We were never sure it was one. The Red Skull was feared even by the Nazis who claimed his allegiance. Skull and shoulders above the rest. He reigned as the Advocatus Diaboli of comics. Captain America was an unprecedented success. The first issue sold out. Superhero business became the comic publisher's holy grail. Suddenly, every company, timely included, began spawning a profusion, nay, a teeming multitude of red, white, and blue, starred and striped and spangled imitations. Within three months, the population explosion had become so rampant that timely issued the following statement. Imitators beware. Now that Captain America has attained such a vast following, many comic books are attempting to copy his costume and deeds. The publisher of Captain America hereby served notice that they will prosecute to the full extent of the law any and all such acts of infringement there is only one captain america the notice was accompanied by an illustration of an irate cap raising his shield in a very hostile gesture there was no need to worry no facsimile was reasonable enough there was only one captain america while the Kirby pencil was occupied with its prodigious output, Joe Simon kept busy in his own capacity, editing, writing, plotting, handling production details, and occasionally penciling and inking. The production pressure was overwhelming, Kirby revealed. I had to draw faster and faster, and the figures began to show it. Arms got longer, legs bent to the action, torsos twisted with exaggerated speed. My pace created distortions. I discovered the figures had to be extreme to have an impact, the kind of impact I saw in my head. Kirby charted, on a trial and error basis, the unknown limits of a radically new art. He developed a kind of impressionistic shorthand. He made the difficult look easy, the impossible in everyday occurrence. Long underwear heroes were a dime a dozen. Everybody was creating one, and publishers couldn't get them fast enough. Superman set the style. 
We had to keep the pace and come up with a winner. Then early in 1941, his talents coalesced into an achievement. Of necessity, Captain America was born. The times demanded it. I was seeing mankind in its noblest terms. Human beings not as they are, but as they might be. The country was almost at war. We needed a super patriot, Kirby recalls. The visual inspiration was, of course, obvious. Drape the flag on anything and it looks good. We gave him a chain mail shirt and a shield, like a modern day crusader. The wings on his helmet were from Mercury, god of speed. He symbolized the American dream. It had to be done that way. Late Ed Heron, Jack's friend, wrote a few early Captain America adventures and created the Red Skull, comics villain supreme. Originally triangular with three stars and eight stripes, Cap's shield became round with the second issue. No one seems to remember quite why. Whether for the purpose of function or design, the change worked. At the same time, Cap's cowl was lengthened to cover his neck and surround his ears. On Cap's costume could be found some of the stripes some of the time, but not all the stripes all the time. It didn't matter. Stripes didn't make the man. Muscles medical students never even heard of were exerted in symphonies of strength. Cap and Bucky moved with jolting, violent speed. Mass battle scenes were expertly choreographed. Stories became pure orchestrations of motion. The Kirby Formula, a maximum of excitement in a minimum of time and space. If Superman and Batman were the foundations of the business, Captain America formed the cornerstone of the industry. Kirby more than any other artist, Captain America more than any other title, and Timely more than any other publisher, injected the essence of the pulps into comic books. All of you, let's go to the screening room. America. The world was being torn apart by a great global war. The United States needed a hero, an invincible super soldier. And that hero appeared in a star-spangled costume. His name, Captain America. His deadliest foe, the monstrous Red Skull. Uh, either would you call no you probably wouldn't i would say arnim zola just because of how crazy and insane he looks um and if it wasn't that like uh, yeah you would you call modok a captain america villain or is he more oh, he's absolutely a captain america villain he was created to be a cap villain he just expanded to the greater marvel universe after the fact okay then i would say modok actually just because he's he's even more crazy looking than baron zemo is there um, any specific stories without one of those characters or is it just the concepts alone it is purely concept it's like one of those things, like sometimes villains will just strike the right chord with me because there's some, as you'd say, some primordial element to it. In DC, I love Gorilla Grodd just because the idea of a talking ape with mental powers, with psychic powers, that floors me. It's so um, awesome. It's, yeah. it's the same thing with uh, Modok. It's just this giant Humpty Dumpty head with tiny little spindly arms and legs, and he floats and shoots lasers out of his forehead. Fucking well, awesome. Well, plus his name is an acronym, and yes. part of the acronym is designed to kill, or designed only to kill. <laughs> designed for killing it's so only you, for killing that's just so awesome yes only for killing <laughs> which is clearly not true he has other ideas and other things going on yeah yeah he really hasn't gotten a lot of killing in they should have him do something to build him up a little bit more but i, uh, I like the pure ridiculousness of it he doesn't have to be validated fucking modok man look at him he's a mental organism designed only for killing fucking modok I like them because I always feel like Baron Zemo and Red Skull, they kind of get lost together because their motives and their plans are usually so similar. They're kind of interchangeable a lot, even though their visual looks are so different. I think that they're both stereotypical megalomaniacs, world-conquering type villains, but they do have some strong differences if you read a lot of those stories. But the problem is Dimitis used Zemo a lot, and then in Thunderbolts, Buzik and Fabian Nicieza used them a lot. But in terms of Cap, he hasn't appeared that often. 
And he did not appear often at all, and they had Brook Breaker run. I think he only turned up for the Winter Soldier material, right? So they could pit Bucky against Zemo. Yeah, once, uh, once. But even that, I think that was after. I think that was after Steve Rogers came back, mm-hmm. um, and then Zemo was around because Zemo was like trying to exact revenge on Bucky. But the, but the point being is that the two longest runs in Captain America history, Gruenwald and Brubaker, each of them had like a Zemo story across their entire lengthy runs. Because mm-hmm. I think the Bloodstone Hunt was the only time Gruenwald used. Zemo in any significant fashion, and Brubaker only used them the one time in that latter-day story. So there's not a lot of Cap stories that actually involve Zemo out there. I'll be interested in how they use the character in Civil War. I really like the actor that they cast. Did you see Drive? It was Rush. Rush, sorry, Rush. Yeah, with, with Chris Evans. I did see that, and I thought he was great. He, like, stole the show. The movie was fine. I liked seeing Natalie Dormer naked in the beginning of it. That, you know, it was good in, like, the first five minutes. I was like, okay, well, this is worth it. Um, <laughs> but that character, that actor, and his name escapes me for the moment, but I thought he was phenomenal. So when they said that he was in talks to be in either Civil War or Doctor Strange, I was like, perfect. I still haven't seen it, but I think Mac hasn't recommended it. it. The movie's fine. It's entertaining. It's maybe too long for how simple the story is, but he's really good. Chris Hemsworth is good. Red Skull's pretty awesome. I like crossbones. Now, why do you like crossbones? I don't know. I think he looks so badass. I think he looks awesome. Even though he's got his helmet tied off behind him with the tassels flapping in the back. That's kind of lame. But I like crossbones. I liked him from Captain America and the Avengers video game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Okay. My favorite Captain America villain is easily Baron Zemo. And so far, nobody has brought up Zemo or shown any particular interest in him. Of course, Zemo was essentially created by Dematisse and Zach, so that doesn't hurt. He'd been created previously, but that he was revived by them, and he was much more fleshed out by them. And I thought they did some great work with the character of Thunderbolts as well. I think, actually, that may be part of the problem is he's gotten to be such a well-regarded villain or anti-hero on his own that he's not necessarily closely associated with Captain America anymore. Right. But I'm a big fan of Zemo. He is my favorite Captain America villain by far. I've actually gotten really sick of Red Skull, and I get tired of that guy popping up in story arcs because he's the go-to guy on every arc. Every run has to have at least one Red Skull story uh, where I'll go years between good Zemo stories. And as you mentioned, Zemo is in one of the greatest Avenger stories ever told as well. Yeah, and so, yeah, I guess that's why I kind of forget about Zemo too. When I think Zemo, I think Thunderbolts. Yeah. And Avengers, I guess. Kind of? Well, yeah, because he's the one who reformed the Masters of Evil and his dad was created to be an Avengers villain, as I recall. He wasn't in the Captain America comics. He was just retconned to be a Captain America villain. Um, I think Batrock's lame, but he's treated in the comics as being pretty lame. So, I, I, you know, they're real about who Batrock is. I actually like Batrock quite a bit. Mm. He's a lot of fun, but I he's fun, again, for the reasons why you stayed is he's a he's a good guy to see fight Captain America, but he's not somebody who should ever beat Captain America. I just enjoy him when he beats other people to show that when Batrock kicks the shit out of Punisher, that's where Punisher stands relative to Captain America. The guy who Captain America easily beats would destroy the Punisher, for instance. Oh, I like, uh, I like the Serpent Society. Yeah, Serpent Society's cool. I don't know more about, I don't know about his villains that I specifically dislike. Yeah, one that I really enjoy that they didn't do a great job developing over time was Flag Smasher and Ultimatum. Yeah. I thought that that was Looks a cool, cool group. And unfortunately, they threw them under the bus for a Red Skull arc, of course. But I thought they were really cool. I really liked the Scourge of the Underworld when he was running around. Yeah, Flag Smasher always looked badass. Well, he's basically Space Ghost, but with a... <laughs> right. You know, I like, too, how he has the black and white costume. He's opposed to nations. He's opposed to any sort of nationalism at all. And I love how he worked as a direct contrast to Captain America, who's in these primary colors. He's got a black and white worldview and has no colors in his costume at all. He has the mace where Cap has the shield. It just worked for me. Oh, speaking of, I'm scrolling through. Here's a flag smasher issue. Kieran Dwyer and Grunwald. 
I really liked Super Patriot. I, d- I didn't care for Johnny Walker when he became U.S. agent, but I liked him as Super Hadrian, again, as a good contrast to Captain America, as a different form of American patriotism. That jingoism, that rah-rah, flag-waving without any thought behind it sort of patriotism that he represented. As you can I'm tell, I, I, I like the guys that fight Cap on a symbolic level as well as on a physical level. You know, the Grand Director is pretty cool because of the white supremacy angle, uh, things like that. Yeah, gotcha. I can see that. Uh, Serpent Society I always thought was cool. Yeah, Serpent Society is, cool. is that a strictly cap villain? Are they strictly caps? Well, what it is is they were formed out of a variety of different snake-themed villains from throughout the Marvel Universe, but then being collected as a team was a Captain America thing. Oh, okay, because I remember, like, the, I guess when it was Anaconda was squeezing them and the other one was going to attack them and – um, but anyway, see, I think I, some of that might have come out of the serpent. serpent Society was kind of cool. Yeah, some of that might have. They did that whole, back then when they were talking about the movies coming out, and they they said Captain America three Serpent Society. I was like, well, that that sounds pretty fucking cool. I know who the Serpent Society is. Like, it's you know a group of supervillains that are all like snakes, and then it turned out nah, I was just a ruse. Mm-hmm. Well, at this point, I would have liked to see the Serpent Society. <laughs> no, that, I that, behind that. It's they're one of those ones I like because they make the point that Cap doesn't fight a lot of individual villains. He fights whole teams of super people and still takes them on. Plus, the Serpent Society in the 80s was sort of like his Cobra. So Yeah, true. true. Oh, yeah, true. Oh, dude. Red Skull, the Hydra, and everything behind that, the Nazis. Dude, that is, I think, next to Batman, those two have the coolest gallery of villains. Batman's are all like mental psychosis of what his mind is, the breakdown of his mind. Cap, dude, literally fighting evil. <laughs> like, the essence of evil. Hydra and everything. Because, of course, they always played up, you know, all the different villains, the the uh, Nazi villains and the Hydra villains really were, what, interchangeable, weren't they? I mean, they were pretty much Nazis. They just yeah, essentially Hydra instead. That's what's worked with the movies is, you know, the movies don't want to deal with Nazis. So they're just able to make them slightly more generic soldiers, but they're clearly still Nazis at heart. They still have that same modus operandi and attitude. They just updated it from there. And I think it worked beautifully. I personally always thought the reason that they pushed Hydra and said, oh, well, you know, we cut ourselves off from the Nazis. They didn't want to be associated with marching people into ovens type thing. Right. Like, oh, we're crazy scientists. We don't march people in ovens. We just inject them with shit and turn them into mutants. But we don't do that. You know, we don't put them in ovens. We use them, you know, right. for science. They're higher minded, more progressive Nazis. I mean, you know what Hydra's you say, history, right? Say? In the comics? Because huh? um, that's the reason why Mac and I got so upset about the use of Baron Strucker. Because Strucker was a Nazi commandant who fought Nick Fury during the war. After the Reich fell, Strucker formed Hydra out of the remnants of the Reich and then use them somewhat the way they use the movies where they were infiltrating other governments but they also yeah. had their terrorist units of their own and so they were a continuation they were something of a fourth reich and that was all because of strucker and then when they used them as a throwaway villain in age of ultron it rubbed us the wrong way because they basically gave a lot of strucker story to red skull and then they don't use either one of the characters anymore yeah that kind of like I, I hate the fact that they got rid of red skull i would have loved to see him keep fighting because he's just be per out i always love the fact that he's the complete opposite of Cap. I see villains I don't like. Um, well, I hate when Cap goes up against galactic type characters. Mm-hmm. Too big. Yeah, Thanos, and I, I get that he he's at that. I don't know. I just I always found it really strange. It just doesn't work well because it doesn't – Cap works better when there's some metaphorical quality to him where he's representing something. Where yeah. when you've got the spirit of America versus a godlike being, it doesn't just it, – it gets too big and too far from what he's supposed to represent, I think. Yeah, it's – it's kind of the same thing with, like, Batman. When they have Batman fighting intergalactic aliens, I don't like that. I guess the perfect example would be Daredevil. I was, was it you? I can't remember who I was talking to. 
we were reading something and Daredevil's in some kind of intergalactic battle and they're like, what the fuck is Daredevil doing there? Like, right. He throws a he throws a stick and he runs around blind. He has no reason to be there besides being a like, cannon father. That's it. Like, he's just there to take a bullet. There's nothing. There's no reason for him to be there. I was like, yeah, that's true. Like, there's there's certain characters that like, I don't like. I get that they do it so you can have like the whole universe in it, but it just doesn't make sense to me. He's like, street level. It, you got to keep him street level. Yeah, that's when they're good. When they're that you know street nor dark and greedy story that's great when you got them fighting galactic god it's kind of lame like yeah I, I don't mind capping in that kind of story so long as it's as a member of the avengers and he's got that whole team that includes gods in it and he's just part of the yeah. mix but, see, but when it's like him against it, Korvac, it, what no this isn't how this is supposed to play out him traveling through time and shit i don't i don't need all that crap I like him when he when he's like when he's like you just said when he's fighting with the Avengers and they're fighting a, a a galactic level threat, but he's like the commander. He's he's back there. He's giving commands. He's directing. That makes sense to me because he's a war veteran. When he's out there throwing his shield at Galactus, makes no sense to me. No, no. So, Although it okay. was a cool moment in Infinity Gauntlet when he stands in front of Thanos, but that only works and because Thanos it was part of a bigger met, story. Yes, yeah. He didn't actually fight Thanos. He was just there to show that he would stand up against a god and then die. Actually, the worst cover I've ever seen of a hero and a villain is Thanos versus Kagar. Oh, that was bad. That, that was, was like so bad. Stupid as fuck. I was so angry. I'd like Thanos to know the story that. behind that. I want to know why that happened. I want to say that it was another one of those situations where Wade wanted to use a different villain and they took the villain he wanted away and he could use Thanos so he just did. But I don't think anybody's ever really forgiven him for that because they, oh, dude, I've, I think I got three pages into it and I was like, I refuse to read this. I just refuse to read it. If, if you're an all of Thanos, Thanos fan, it makes you angry. Yeah. Honestly, crossbones kind of bores me. The visual elements of like the skull and crossbones, it's like, okay, Punisher does that better than you. Red Skull does that better than you. He's fine. He benefited from the era in which he was created, or the era in which he kind of became popular. The 80s and 90s probably gave him more credibility than he needed. Brubaker did some cool stuff with him, but again, he's never been anything approaching a worthy villain for Captain America in my eyes. Getting into the deeper run by Brubaker and some of the more modern comics, Red Skull's daughter Sin annoys the shit out of me. And then when they made her Red Skull around the time of the Fear Itself uh, series, which was awful. That was such a bad series, like that bad event. Poorly written, just uh, uh, uh. So yeah, she. I, I think her design was stupid. I think her motives are dumb. I don't like that character. I don't like Red Skull's daughter, Sin. She would probably be the worst villain. Crossbones, a close second behind her, just because I'm like, yeah, he's, he's just a mercenary. Mm-hmm. I think Frank Grillo was probably wasted on that on that part in the Winter Soldier. I mean, he they could have just changed his name. Well, I think he had a, a good performance in that, and I guess they need to find a way to get Crossbones in there. But to me, Crossbones was a proto-Bane. He was Red Skull's mm. muscle. Most of the stories of note featuring that character were done under Gruenwald and not the early stuff that I liked. I liked when they paired him off with Sin, but Sin seemed like she was – they seemed like have a nice Bonnie and Clyde thing going on there. I wish they'd stuck with that as these two kids of Red Skull that go off and do their own thing. But once they try to bring him back into the core myth and turn her into the new Red Skull, I don't think the character is interesting enough to support that much expectation of her and she was always a problematic character anyway even when she was sister sin in the dematisse run you could do an amazing crossbow story basically setting him up as a white supremacist neo-nazi in america especially in uh, the era in which we're existing right now with all of the news footage of black churches being burned down and the confederate flag and everything and the police basically abuse of power in arresting and shooting black people. I think you could tell a crossbone story like that, basically putting him, making 
making him that type of character, brace him as a kind of American domestic terrorist with this white supremacist angle. You could do something like that and really kind of play on contemporary political themes with him. But as just a pure villain in a superhero story, I think he falls pretty short. That's part of the problem with Crossbones is he betrays his own concept because the name Crossbones, he's supposed to be related to piracy. He's supposed to be this mercenary. And yet they immediately tie him into Red Skull and turn him into his main henchman. So he's not much of a pirate if he's only working for this one guy all the time. Right. And then as far as the racist themes, this if they haven't done that in the comics, it'd be something new for him where they could bring back somebody like the Grand Director that would plug into those themes much more effectively. But he's already on that wavelength. I just don't like the guy. Plus, he's a rapist. And that's something that they've never addressed well in the comic books once they brought it up. He raped Diamondback on its own without that ever having been addressed properly. I just don't want that character around at all in anything. So I'm hoping he'll just be a throwaway villain in the new movie and then they'll be done with him. But I do like Frank Grillo's performance of the character. It's just he's playing a different character in the movies than the, what they have in the comics. And that's probably a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but again, they they also didn't need to call him Brock Rumlow. They could have changed his name to anything and it would have been, it would have been fine. It was- or, or in any way tied to any kind of reality you know, nobody in the, in the entire human history has ever ever been named anything like Brock Rumlow. <laughs> that's oh, that, that's oh only god. fiction. Oh my god, the 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 Idlehead podcast when you were talking about the Justice League Mortal when he said Army Hammer, who like in spite of not having a, a human name, I laughed my ass off when I heard <laughs> you, you like say that. One? that. <laughs> it's like Army Hammer, who who would ever name their child? That, uh, there's actually people out there. There's a Hammer family with a Hammer crest that looks like I guess Army Hammer that you have in your refrigerator. I I don't know what the hell. So, no. No. God, that poor bastard. Then, in 1945, the war's end. There was a fateful explosion which hurled Captain America's unconscious body into the sea. There, he was frozen alive, remaining in a state of suspended animation until many years later, the ice finally melted and Captain America returned to renew his struggle for justice and liberty. J.M. DeMatteis. Captain America is a very, very different thing because he is, he is an inherently good and decent man. And the trick is when you write those characters is to keep that always in mind but make them interesting. And Roger Stern, who came before me on the book, um, was wise enough to ground him with a nice supporting cast that he started, and I got—I was able to take that and develop it. He had the relationship with Bernie. I got to take that and develop it, um, and make him, uh, thanks to the groundwork that Roger did, make him more human, so that he's not just. Because the worst thing that could happen with Captain America is that he's just a symbol, and if a character is just a symbol, they're not a human being. So you have to find that that humanity in the character. And and I, I and he was one of those characters where I really came to fall in love with the character as I was writing him. I always liked Captain America, great you know, iconic character, loved, you know, the Jack Kirby and all that's what Stan did and I read it over the years. But when I actually sat down to write the character was when I really connected and came to love the character. Uh, oh, real quick, supporting character also, U.S. Agent. Oh, yeah. I always liked U.S. Agent. I thought that was kind of cool. And his even his nomad period was kind of cool. Now, are uh, you talking about Cap's nomad period? Yeah, Cap's nomad period. Because, you know, another guy came along and took that name that used to be oh, a, I a that. Yeah. I just remember, he, was it, wasn't it where Cap was, he felt like disenfranchised with the American Dream or something? Sure, sure. Yeah, during the Steve Englehart years in the 1970s, after uh, became, Nixon you know, killed himself, supposedly, in the comics. He became the lone wolf cruising on a motorcycle hardly down the road type shit. Well, as lone wolf as you can get with an open chest and V-neck and a cape. 
I always thought Black Widow was kind of cool. Because they, okay, wait, on this one, I was always a little confused. Cap was unfrozen before or after the Cold War? Let me put it to you this way. In the original comics, the Cold War was still on when he was unfrozen. Obviously, okay. they have to keep moving so the. He would have been at, he would have been at odds with the Black Widow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, given. Okay. Um, Since you haven't read a lot of Cap comics, then I don't know that you would really know his supporting cast well enough. I Dum Dum. You like Dum Dum Dugan? Yeah, he's always been yeah, kind of, you know. More from the movies, I expect, like, oh, right? He's kind of cool. But but you like him more from the movies since he didn't interact a lot with Cap. No, no, otherwise. even the comics. I actually kind of I kind of like the, the the couple of books I read where he was. Uh, I remember at one time he was running Shield and um, I don't know. He's just kind of you know. I'm I'm not a big Falcon fan. Bucky was like Robin. Like those are characters I just don't care for very much. I'm not big on the uh, the boy uh, sidekick notion. And uh, the Holland Commandos, I guess, were always kind of cool. What I've seen of them, but I haven't read a lot of them. Well, what's interesting is because they had to shed a lot of Nick Fury's backstory. It seems like Cap absorbed a lot of who Nick Fury was as well as being Cap in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, I never thought about that. It's true. He did. Huh. Huh. I never thought about that. I'm trying to think what psychic I didn't like. Um, or not just a psychic necessarily, but like a sporting character or someone he interacts with. Just Bucky. Yeah. And then they kind of made him cool when they turned him into Winter Soldier, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I thought he was really cool in the movie. Really? I like the uh, Sebastian Straw had that predatory stance about him that I like. You know, I a, a determined cable. killer. Every time, he, every time I saw him on screen, dude, I just kept thinking Cable with that one metallic arm. Mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, dude, looks like Cable. Like I, he looks like what I I would figure a young Cable would look like. Yeah, know? I still kind of hate the metallic arm. I, as as much as I'll give the movie credit right. for making that as legitimate as I could, it still bugs the crap out of me. I think it's just so hokey and comic booky that I can't get past that. I, I will agree with you on that. Diamondback because that was from that Kieran Dwyer stuff. Sharon Carter. I was from the Mark Wade stuff. I like Sharon Carter a lot. I think she's pretty good. I'm cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was never a Falcon guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like him in the movies. I know you don't. Nope. And you know, when I was reading, Bucky was never really around. I didn't read a lot of the original Bucky Barnes Bucky. I liked Jack Monroe, who became Nomad. Rick Jones was Bucky for a while there. They, everybody seems to forget. And he was okay. Shout out Rick Jones. Uh, I would say the Falcon. Based on it, the Kirby run or any particular run? Both the Kirby run. Well, yeah, from, yeah, mostly. Cause yeah, I didn't I didn't care for him so much like in his earliest appearances. But once he was brought back in the Kirby run around the time of Captain America 200, the bicentennial, I liked him in that one. I liked what Brew Baker did with him, especially after Steve Rogers was killed off. When it basically for about a year, it became about what Captain America means to this universe and who could fill that void. And I liked how the character was approached there. I really like the Falcon as a character, and I've read more of his stuff, even his old miniseries and stuff. And I don't like the fact that he Sam Wilson is now. Captain America. It's not because I think Steve Rogers has to be Captain America, although I do think that is partially true. It's because it feels like an insult to the Falcon that they're saying, no, he needed this promotion in order to be legitimate. It cheapens the character by saying, here, put on the shield and now you're better. Like, no, the Falcon was still a badass hero in his own right, I think. I've not read much Ed Brubaker Falcon material. I've tried to read that Winter Soldier period, and I stall out each time because I'm just not into it. But it's not that it's bad writing. It's just not what I want to read. Mm -hmm. But the only time I ever liked the Falcon as a character was when Christopher Priest was doing it in the Captain America Falcon series, where he was used specifically and explicitly as a counterpoint to Captain America's patriotism. He was a cynic. He was a skeptic. He was the hard guy who was going to make the hard choices regardless of the consequences, and uh, it, it made him work as a character for me better than he has any place else but i do like how he's portrayed in the movies 
It's just that that's not Sam Wilson from the comic books in any incarnations that I've ever seen. No, I yeah, I completely agree. When I was watching The Winter Soldier, I was like, this is not the same character, but it's not a bad character. It's funny. It, he is still a counterpoint to Steve Rogers. So I think he still fulfills that. He just Anthony offers Mac- levels. Anthony le- Mackie brings a very different energy. When, when you have a buddy cop type of situation, you need that. He can so bring I- the levity and he can bring the perspective mm-hmm. and he's much more the common man mm-hmm. where Cap, they've really sold him as being the super soldier He's got such a clarity of vision that sometimes you need a regular guy to just go, hey, Cap, how about this? Yeah. And I liked I, – I don't like how much the military and the government and S.H.I.E.L.D. is a part of everybody's origin in the Marvel Universe. I'm not crazy about that. But I did like at least that when we see Sam in the beginning of that movie, he is working with veterans. He's still approached as a sort of a caregiver and he's a counselor. And that at least felt a little bit respectful of the character's comic book roots because you saw how he was – He's not, not a social worker, but he's coming yeah. from a, a similar place of benevolence. Exactly, exactly. So I felt like, I was like, okay, it's not the same thing, but it, it's a close. It feels like a little bit of a consolation prize, and it's uh, I'm willing to accept that. I don't like the fact that he had to be Special Forces. I don't like that Hawkeye is a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, because that feels completely the opposite of what Hawkeye would be in the comics. Well, it's a bit lazy, because Marvel doesn't want to do origins, and if mm-hmm. you're going to tell how these guys are able to fight at that level, you need an origin, or you need to be able to go, oh yeah, they were a Special Agent with S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, they were part of this experimental program involving a flying harness, and he's right. the only survivor of that particular program that kind of thing it, it, it's an easy shorthand to get around telling an origin story i would say falcon more than bucky more than sharon or peggy or i don't know enough about cap's romantic interests throughout the years they're all sort of all blonde women look the same to me in marvel comics well i have a soft spot for bernie rosenthal oh yeah yeah she was during that year who was the gay couple that steve rogers was friends with was that during the wade run no i think that was during the oh because one of yeah. one of them was like killed by the vermin or something right, or he was turned right. into he was turned into a monster by baron zemo i don't remember the character's name but yeah that was during his run one of those things that flew under the radar but it was a pretty big deal that that happened in mm-hmm. comics history is a big deal that happened but nobody ever really talks about it Right, because they never mentioned the word. So. Right, they never made it completely explicit. Right, uh, but yeah, I would say Falcon. Okay, Jam Mateus. When those things happen, it's not because you set out to go. Oh, I want to give Captain America a gay best friend. I just had the idea that oh, it would really be cool because now this was the '80s, so World War II was was maybe 40 years before as opposed to now where like you know if you're going to have someone from World War II, they're really old. They could he could still be a reasonably young man, you know. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting if Cap met somebody who knew him when he was a kid and if he was the guy who was Cap's protector growing up in fact in the Captain America movie the character of Bucky what they did with him is really what what Arnie Roth was to Cap they built on Arnie Roth and turned him into Bucky and I didn't set out to go oh I'm going to go give him a gay friend it just as I started writing it it became apparent that that's what it was so it it becomes a surprise to me so I I wasn't on a soapbox going I'm going to write a story about a gay guy and blah, 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 blah. And, and it also made sense for me for that character. Here's Captain America. He represents America. He represents all of us. His girlfriend is Jewish. His best friend is a black guy, the Falcon. And so why wouldn't he have a gay friend? And it becomes this all-inclusive thing that really represents all of us, you know? Whether I was doing that consciously, I don't think so. I think it was just intuitive on my part. But it worked, and Arnie was a great character. And looking back, I'm glad that I that I was the guy who got to do that and put that character out there. Well, it's great too because, as you said, it's not ham-fisted. It's just a natural progression. Right. Right. Well, I wasn't. No, I wasn't waving any flags. <laughs> there he is. It's Captain America. Good girl, hooray! 
you. Today you will see what years of training and exercise have done for me. But first, my three guest stars. The fantastic Firestar. The incredible Iceman. The amazing Spider-Man. Cap's going to be the celebrity I interview for my journalism assignment tomorrow. I thought you asked me. You asked me, too. Uh, no offense, guys, but Cap's always been my favorite superhero. Favorite Captain America artist? I mean, it, it's it probably it, it might seem cliche and it might seem like I'm just like I'm digging back, but I would say Jack Kirby. I say Jack Kirby drew the character in a way that just like he just he he created the character and he especially like in the '60s when he when he brought him back, there was just a way that he he approached that character that just I haven't seen done before, and it feels right. That feels like the authentic Captain America to me. More so uh, than even his Golden Age work. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's once Jack Kirby developed sort of his boxy sort of figure. Even like before he went to DC and did the fourth world stuff, I, I think Kirby's prime was still in the 60s, early Marvel age. Yeah, I mean, it might seem sort of like saying that who's your favorite rock band? Oh, it's the Beatles or something. It's who's your favorite artist? It's Jack Kirby, at least for this character, for Captain America. No, it, it works. And also, that was some of the most pure Kirby. Because even when he was at DC in the 50s, they were throwing inkers at him to tone down his Kirbiness, to smooth him out a little bit. He was at his full crudeness, his full energy, his full premise during that early Marvel age. Yeah, I definitely got the sense that he enjoyed that book and that character more than the others. And he, he came back to him in the 70s and did more of his weirder stuff with that. We got Artem Zola out of it, so it, it all works out. We did. We got Artem Zola and we got the Mad Bomb, and those are good things to have in the Marvel Universe. Jack Kirby. No one else comes close. When I think of Cap, I picture him in the way Kirby drew him in the 60s and the 70s. And I think Kirby had a certain love for the character that feels more genuine, more expressive, and more exciting than any other character he worked on, including the Fantastic Four, which is saying a lot given how long he drew the FF. Least favorite Captain America artist? This isn't a particularly inspired choice, but there's only one artist who ever drew Captain America with man teats. When Rob Liefeld dies, he will have to answer for his drawing of Captain America with fucking breasts. You know, this, the sad thing is, like, based on his, like, Twitter feed and based on how he gives interviews, I have no professional respect for him as an artist, but I think I would love to hang out with him for a while. He just seems like a, a like a natural kind of down to earth fun guy. Oh, least I think was Heroes Reborn. I thought that was crap. <laughs> Absolute crap, dude. Oh, yeah, I'm two I for actually, two on Heroes Reborn right now. <laughs> no, I know. I've asked two people that question, and two people have given the same answer. Right? Yeah, it's that they were so bad. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like when I was talking to Count Droncula, uh, he was like, I can't think of anything, I can't think of anything, and all of a sudden, oh wait, Rob Liefeld! Yeah, that was just bad, 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 bad. In his 2011 book, Super Gods, Our World in the Age of the Superhero, Grant Morrison wrote of Jack Kirby, As a member of the Suffolk Street Gang, he was familiar with the thrill of full-on physical conflict in a way that many of his bookish young contemporaries were not. Indeed, unlike Joe Schuster or Bob Kane, who drew fights at a sniffy remove, Kirby dragged his readers directly into the wild flail of fists and boots that typified the real combat he'd experienced. His figures captured how it felt to somersault through a crowd of antagonists. His heroes and villains clashed in bony, meaty brawls that could sprawl across page after page. Superman might rustle a giant ape for a panel or two, but in Kirby's hands, the fight scenes were a thrilling end in themselves. 
Kirby served in World War II as a private first class in Company F of the 11th Infantry. He landed on Omaha Beach at Normandy two months after D-Day in 1944 and proceeded with his unit into occupied France. There he saw action at the Battle of Bastogne, Belgium, enduring frostbite so severe that Kirby almost lost both feet and was finally mustered out with a combat infantry badge and bronze star for his trouble. His memories of the war informed his work for the rest of his life. But nonetheless, Kirby portrayed violence as a joyous expression of natural masculine exuberance. When American Nazis marched into the building where Simon and Kirby had their studio, demanding the blood of the Captain America creative team, it was Jack who rolled up his sleeves and went to sort them out. As for Captain America self, he was Steve Rogers, a skinny non-com who volunteered for a military experiment designed to turn an ordinary man into a super warrior. Like my dad, or Jack Kirby, Steve just wanted to crack at Hitler. And like many men in the populations of the Allied nations, he reckoned he could take the scrawny little page hanger if only there weren't thousands of miles of occupied territory, barbed wire, soldiers, tanks, and minefields between the sniveling Adolf and the proud fist of retribution. Unlike Superman or Batman, Captain America was a soldier with permission to kill. Until this point, the superheroes operated on the fringes of the law, but Captain America's violent work was endorsed by the Constitution itself. Each issue of Captain America was kinetic, brutally overwrought, and sensationalistic. Every cover featured a brand new tableau of imminent super-atrocity. A girl, her blouse ripped to ribbons, rides on a medieval torture rack while a leering hunchback, preferably sporting swastika tattoos, threatens her cleavage with a glowing poker. Captain America launches himself through a wall on a motorcycle, destroying a portrait of him on the way and simultaneously repelling a hail of bullets with his stars and stripes shield, while his faithful teen partner, Bucky, mows down Ratsies with the feral glee of a William S. Burroughs wild boy, there would invariably be some combination of boiling oil, rabid gorillas, vampires, or a fiendish snake-fanged Japanese involved. Every square inch of illustration contained a frozen moment of grotesque threat or swashbuckling daring do. Kirby relied on his remarkable drawing skills to provide a living for his family, and was serious about selling his books in an overcrowded market. Where Superman had flown the Axis leaders to an international court of law, Captain America took the fantasy to its far more satisfying next level. Kirby knew that wish-fulfillment pictures of American superheroes punching out Hitler's teeth would sell magazines in a fearful world, and his instincts were right. In Captain America, Simon and Kirby gave America's troops, in the field or at home, a hero they could call their own. By the way, if you're Logan, I'm your backup. I'm Captain America. Really? I never would have guessed. I couldn't believe it. Mr. USA. Rubber suit now. Sawyer was right. This partner I liked. Are there any iconic Captain America images, covers or posters or, or slash pages, anything like that? The one where it's him, Wolverine, and Black Widow on the ledge. Oh, the Jim Lee image from Uncanny X-Men? Yeah, that one always kind of stands up in my mind. The other one is the one where he's firing the gun. The Mike Zek picture. Yeah. That, that, that was a that cool story, always... too. That's where he kills the terrorist using an Uzi. And then uh, I always like the one where he's fighting uh, Wolverine. Wolverine. Oh, yeah, that's a classic shield. image. Yeah, another that Mike Zek. That was a good image. No, that was a, that was a lot of good cap, image-wise. Well, not just the icon, but just the image of him fighting it was always looked great even when he had those floppy boots mm. and the wings on his ear on his mask he still looked fucking cool as shit which i always thought was weird because well, like you know most he, he symbolizes it, more than just a guy in a costume i think i think yeah. that people know that there's more to him than just a superhero that he represents something but i did like when they finally started making his uniform like out of chain mail and shit like made it more i guess you call it what uh practical utilitarian or what do you call utilitarian, it utilitarian yeah that works yeah yeah like it made sense okay you know his He's wearing the chainmail to protect himself from, you know, weapon fire and stuff. So I thought that was 
was cool, but th- there was always I've, I've, there's tons of like images I can think of that were always capital cool. Trying to think that splash page from Uncanny was great too, where he's leaping into oh, the yeah. ninjas. This, this gotta sound stupid. Even the the one where it's a button of him running for president. Oh yeah, sure. That was cool. John Byrne did that one if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was just that was just a fun looking cover. They actually turned that into a Halloween giveaway comic, and I still have that little Ashcan version of it. That's yeah, they pack it up like twenty five in a package, and you give them away at Halloween. And of course, you know, my first, my, of course, my first comic that I bought of Cap, the one where he's walking and you see the, the coffin of barren blood. And I, I believe Cap's walking with a flashlight mm. to the room. Oh, yeah. And he's, he's, the cover, blood's right? coming out of the, the uh, coffin. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm like, you know, those are, the, those are the ones that come off, you know, come out at the top of my head that I can say, hey, yeah, I, you know, when I think of Cap, those are the images that pop up right away. This is a weird one, and I don't know why this came to mind, because it doesn't feel like it's what I think about with Cap, but it was the cover to an issue of Avengers during the Jeff Johns run, and I believe it was a Jay Lee picture, and it's Cap sort of front and center holding the shield. He's surrounded by Black Panther and Wanda and Vision and a few others, and they're sort of often profile, but he's up front. I don't know why that image just came to my mind. Very stark and very dark for a Cap image. It is, it is, and it's just... It's like a plain white background, and he's still like partly in shadow just because that's Jay Lee. That's what he does. Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, when I think of Captain America, one of the first images that comes to mind is the cover to issue 193, which is the Mad Bomb issue. Cap is right there front and center, leaping forward with his fist out like he's going to smash through the cover. You can take out all of the background images, the Falcon, the citizens going crazy. You can take out the title, but that pose of Captain America is what I see when I close my eyes and think of him. And I don't think I'm alone in that because the cover was used for the cover to the Captain America Omnibus by Jack Kirby. Okay, so you got the Cap annual with Wolverine cover, Mike Zek, Cap with Punisher standing on his shield, pointing the gun at him. Gun at him oh yeah, that was cover. Frank Miller, wasn't it? Yes. Captain America taking off Baron Blood's head. Iconic. Oh um, yeah, John Byrne. Yep. Um... Every cover Zek did. The death, remember that Deathlock cover? Yeah, literally oh. every cover Zek did. They're all fucking classic images. Although yeah. I think that one with Cap on the rooftop has got to be a favorite of yours, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I you did rendered a, uh... your own recreation of that one for art class, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, it was for speech class. I, I did a speech on how to create a comic book. So I took that cover of Zek's Cap crouched on the, uh, the ledge. I blew it up with a projector and I did it like gigantic sized on a piece of poster board. And then I recreated it again. And this time I inked it and then I did it a third time and I think I think I digitally colored it or whatever. Or no, no, I think I just had the final piece as this is what it looks like after it's to show all the different steps a comic book goes through. Badass. Got an excellent grade on that. And I still have them. Yeah, those were um, badass. I love those. And it also like you had the, the Deathlock cover where Cap's in his sights. It was so yep. awesome. But all of them are great. The MODOK one where you've combined MODOK with Red Skull for Assistant Editor's Month. All the Zek stuff is glorious. Where he's standing in front of the bleeding flag. The commission issue? The one where they take away his right to be Captain America? Yes. Yeah. Was that a Zek though, or was Zek gone by then? I don't know if it was a Zek or not. I just, I'm just naming more iconic imagery. Yeah, I just I wanted to. I like I'm trying to credit the artist as much as possible, but that was going to be toward the end of his run doing covers, and I'm not even sure he did that particular one because I could usually spot Zek by his distinctive faces, and that one Cap's face is obscured. There, yeah, right. There's there is no face. So, um, what are my other iconic Captain America moments? Leading the Kooky Quartet. 
Well, not so much moments, but like images. Like the, the well, ones I, yeah, the image of him jumping forward with the shield, right? Or is that what I'm thinking of Avengers number four? Mm. Maybe it's not that iconic, but I can't remember it. <laughs> well, but the cover of Avengers number four is. There's that Steranko cover where he's got his shield up in the air with the freaking Hydra guy behind him. Remember that one? Well, or all the Hydra guys behind him with him and Bucky fighting through the mound of Hydra agents? Or are you thinking of another one? I'm thinking of another one. Oh, I think I know the one. Is it the one with a tombstone? Nope. Captain America okay. 111. You'll see it and you'll be like, oh shit, that one. <laughs> one for me that doesn't get referenced very often is uh, John Byrne and Joe Rubenstein's 40th anniversary cover from the his run with uh, Roger Stern where it's him and Bucky standing and it's sort of like looks like one of those period propaganda posters I like that one quite a bit oh what was uh, the, the one that Ron Lim did which anniversary was that uh, is the it the one where he's got the, the flag and it's yeah. got like gold ink on the cover yes that yes, one was cool uh, Ron Lim I didn't like the stories from that time period but Ron Lim was a really good cap artist oh one of my favorite Captain America moments of all time Heroes Reborn number one origin where he has to save Falcon's life and whoever the fuck wrote that issue thought that it'd be a good idea that it's a blood transfusion by Cap cutting his hand on a shield and then bleeding green blood into the Falcon's mouth. Like, that's how the fuck you give a blood transfusion. I, I think by that point, Jeff Loeb was writing it, taking cues from Liefeld. It was issue one, so did Liefeld write in? And I know that Chuck Dixon was supposed to write the book, but I think that what happened was that Liefeld was essentially going to do all the plotting and he was just going to script it. So he said, well, hell with that so he might have scripted or partially scripted the first issue but I think most of the plot was Liefeld and it might have been a situation where Jeff Loeb came in and had to finish the script on even that first issue but I believe he did the succeeding issues Jesus well that was one of the worst things ever <laughs> <laughs> I was like Iron Man number one was pretty good uh, the one that uh, Scott Lobdell and Will Spertacio and Will Spertacio was pretty good you know when people run down Scott Lobdell they forget stuff like Iron Man I thought he did a pretty good job with the character based on my limited exposure to the character at that point in time but yeah Captain America like from jump i was completely off that i'm like this sucks bring back dave hoover <laughs> still trying to find that fucking cover where he's with the bleeding uh flag. oh here it is do, 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 do. no mike's that cover okay well it makes sense because it's great because it's great yeah it's fantastic so yeah those i, I really my- like that painted stranko poster that he did I, i'm i think he did it back in the 70s but it's been reused a number of times where it's cap in profile and then there's just this montage of images related to cap which one the main image is captain america shown in profile kind of screaming like he's looking over his shoulder there's another iconic cat moment that i love and it's from avengers under siege but we're not going to talk about that because we're going to read avengers under siege eventually yeah cap was fantastic in that but that's a moment not a image right 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 so. i also you know as much as i hated the marvel knights run john cassie did some great images related to that run before. oh yeah his cap was fantastic and he's the one who really popularized the return of the scales being the real scales. metal looking more like a knight and as much as i resisted going away from superhero costuming and toward more realistic ultimately in retrospect he looks a lot better and i think he's a much more palatable character when rendered in that realistic fashion as opposed to the classic Vermita or, or kirby style drawings of the character I think that's probably it for me. Do you have any particular images really turned you off besides the uh, Rob Liefeld material? Dave Hoover, buddy. And the Dave Hoover material. Okay. If, if he's got that sh- super shitty RoboCop wannabe helmet on, <sighs> or... Uh... 
he's fighting or Cap Wolf, any of that stuff. Yeah, no, Cap Wolf was during Rick Levens. Rick Levens, I liked okay. He was then he wasn't like a great artist, but I thought he was better than he was giving credit for. And he's the one who started that deal where Cap's blonde eyebrows would show through the mask, oh, which like Jim, Jim Lee, Lee picked up on. Yeah, but but he did it first, and that ended up being a nice touch. I thought it it worked well for the character. That little peek at at his uh, human side is is being an individual rather than just a symbol. Hey, agree to disagree. Okay, so you hate the eyebrows? No, no, I, I don't mind the eyebrows. But that, but that uh, Rick Levens was somehow underrated or something. I, I don't know what the hell you're talking about there. Well, I don't think he's really rated at all. I don't think people would even really remember that hey, guy. And thank God. From 1997's The Comic Book Heroes, the first history of modern comic books from the Silver Age to the present by Gerard Jones and Will Jacobs. Lee and Kirby found yet another new spin on the alienated hero. The successes of the revived Human Torch and Submariner made inevitable the return of the company's third Golden Age star, Captain America, particularly since Jack Kirby had helped create him. So the Avengers find him frozen in an Arctic ice block preserved at the peak of his career by a plunge into an icy sea at the end of World War II. Though still filled with the fighting spirit, Cap is a man reborn into a strange era and reborn alone, for he learns that his beloved sidekick, Bucky Barnes, died in the same act of sacrifice that left him frozen. What happens next, he ponders. Can't return to my career as Captain America. It would be meaningless without Bucky. I don't belong in this age, in this year. No place for me. If only Bucky were here. If only. Cap joins the Avengers and finds a surrogate Bucky in the Hulk's young friend, Rick Jones. But there is no easy solution for Cap's almost morbid grief. His transfer of emotion to the unwitting Rick soon take on a powerfully creepy tone. The formula was working. Since the failure of the Hulk, Marvel superheroes had enjoyed nothing but climbing sales. By early 1965, Captain America was backing up Iron Man in tales of suspense. Lee tried to remind us occasionally of the poignancy of Cap's displacement as a World War II hero stuck in the 60s, but Kirby dominated the series with action that must have had his adrenaline pumping as fast as heroes. In Cap's first solo adventure, he's attacked by a gang of thugs armed with automatic pistols and an electronic suit of armor, and Jack treats us to seven pages of a ten-page story of flying bullets, hurtling bodies, judo throws, crunching fists, bulging muscles, and collapsing furniture, all free of the encumbrance of plot or captions, and executed with the exuberant abandon of a saloon brawl in a big-screen western. By this time, Marvel was making enough money that Lee could begin giving Kirby some significant raises in his page rate, eventually the highest in the business. Kirby could cut his workload without cutting his income, concentrating on pumping up his art and moving into a monumental, high-velocity storytelling style that would set the comic book world just as violently on its ear as his early work had a quarter century before. For three more issues, Cap fought a gang of acrobatic Nazi assassins, a communist sumo wrestler, in Vietnam and a whole cell block full of convicts. He began a 10-issue sequence set during World War II in which he and Bucky gaily turned back the tide of fascism. This allowed no room for characterization, alienation, or mourning, but in return, Lee got a little more unity for his Marvel Universe. Cap and some of his villains had already appeared in the World War II of Sergeant Fury, and Nick Fury himself, now a colonel and a CIA agent, had appeared in the present when Adolf Hitler resurfaced to annoy the Fantastic Four for an issue. Lee wasn't just uniting the past and present of his own world, but stirring them both up with our world. Kirby's Captain America enjoyed its share of grandeur. Although restricted by the limited powers of its hero and its 10 pages per issue format, it gave us the return of the ultimate Nazi villain, the Red Skull, and the reawakening of some monumental, horrific Nazi death machines called the Sleepers, brilliantly conceived as huge, abstract metal skulls, and a quest for the Cosmic Cube. Even with that, Jack found room for Cap's struggle with his past, his affair with a woman who was an eerily perfect double of his lover of the 1940s, and his involvement with the Shield. Meg, bring out that shield! <laughs> Yes, that's the sound of indestructible Wakandan vibranium. Favorite Captain America writer? 
How long was Englehart on the book? You know, he had short but always influential runs on a lot of books. I don't know exactly how long he was on, but at least a year, I would say. Because I know this may be a surprise. I've never actually read the Englehart run. I've read bits and pieces. I think I knew it from Reputation and from Marvel Universe handbooks and things like that more than actually reading those stories. But people seem to really love that run, and it definitely turned the book around. I I think I read those on Marvel Unlimited. If it's the issues I remember, I really enjoyed those them. Those are the ones with the Secret Empire, Nomad, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. cap of the 1950s. It was definitely a God. huge influence on The Winter Soldier. I would say mm-hmm. as much as Ed Brubaker, Steve Englehart was an influence on that movie. Maybe just by sheer volume, I've read more of his Captain America than the other guys, even the writer who wrote Cap for like seven or eight years. I, oh, I Grunewald? Think I've, yeah, Grunewald. Sorry, I couldn't. his name was escaping me. I started reading his Cap run and it got interrupted. But that was, where, that, that was 12 years and that was a damned long 12 years. Good I've years. heard the run should have been half that length. I I've think heard- that gives it more credence than I'm willing to. I think he had two real good years, and after that, he needed to go, and he stayed okay. on for 10 more. Oh, gosh. Probably not what you want to hear, but I think Brubaker is my favorite cap writer in terms of just what I have read and what I'm familiar with. Yeah, I, I dug those stories. He gets an extra boost for being the writer who made me like Cap in the first place. Yeah. I'm happy for people liking Cap. but And he also had a very long run. He was on there for about six or seven years, right? Yeah, I want to say he came aboard in 2004 or 2005, and he only left it before the Marvel Now changeover. The sheer volume of how long he worked on the book, his run was like seven or eight years long. That, and he's the guy who got us out of the Marvel Knights Captain America, and he's got to be applauded for that. He made me a Captain America fan. I got his first story arc, which introduced the Winter Soldier, and it just grabbed me and held me. I knew who the character was, obviously, but for all intents and purposes, Brubaker introduced me to Cap's world. He introduced me to characters that I never really expected to like very much. Like, he also made me like the Falcon. I really, really enjoyed the stories he told. Yes, a lot of them were derivative of previous runs and previous stories, but because I didn't know that at the time when I was reading them, these ideas were brand new for me, and they were all amazing. I like Steve Englehart's issues. I like the Dematis run a whole lot. The Mark Wade stuff, of course, and Stan Lee's, of course. But if I have to pick one writer, I'm picking Ed Brubaker. For Cap? Um, no, I mean, I, I mean I, I've really read mostly just Ultimate Cap. I remember you got me to read a little bit of the Scourge stuff, which the I thought was one? pretty cool. Scourge, or was it? Oh, uh, Scourge of the Underworld, where the guy yeah. was running around killing all the C-list villains. Yeah, I mean, I thought, actually, you gave me one at your old shop, because I remember you were talking about it. Yeah, that was a cool story arc. Because I, I think I was talking about Marvel Universe Guide the Dead. And I was oh, and he, about how yeah, they, the Scorch filled that damn thing up in that second edition, the deluxe edition. Yeah, and I remember I was talking about that, and you said, oh, there's like two or three issues where that all happens, and those like those are those characters are killed. And I remember asking you, well, where do you find them? You said the quarter box, and so I found them and took them. But I never read the whole – I remember I bought the whole series, but I never read it all. I wouldn't say I have a favorite cap writer because I've never been a regular cap reader. And, and that means you also uh, don't have Mark a favorite run, run either, I did right? Read, huh? I you did all- read Mark Wade's run. Which I thought was pretty good. The first run or the second one? The second one. Uh, the one and where I, uh, Cooper. So you know, out of the entire run, the only one issue I kept was the Red Skull issue. Of course. Which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I'm wondering what the original version was that Marvel censored yeah, it and rewrote you told it. Me there was, didn't they clean it up or something or changed it? My understanding is they rearranged all the pages and rewrote the thing. Mark Wade wanted his name taken off of it because it didn't resemble the story that he'd written. And my understanding is it was supposed to be even more fucked up the way he wrote it. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, they they did that to censor him, basically. I would be fascinated to see that one because that one was actually – I thought it was a really good story. I was kind of fascinated with the Red Skull. You know what? I take it back. I, I'm a bit of a liar now. I did read the uh, Vengeance series and Cap did pop in that. Vengeance. Yeah, which where was everybody that? swapped villains. Oh, Acts of Vengeance. Acts of Vengeance. Here you go. Where everybody swapped – I remember reading that and Cap popped up. Okay. Do you have any particular Cap stories that you hated? 
cap stories that I hated. Yeah, where you didn't either didn't mm. like the story or didn't like him in the story. It's kind of hard to fuck up a Captain America story. I mean, I can't think of anything I've read that I thought was like, oh, wow, this is garbage. Didn't he do a series with Ghost Rider? Oh, he did a one like shot. Yeah, I think they, DG Chichester did it. One? I remember thinking that was really weak. Yeah, they they teamed up to fight the Scarecrow, if I remember correctly. There you go, the Scarecrow. And this was a Scarecrow that really did look like the Scarecrow? The uh, old Marvel one. He was he Actually, if you can believe this, he started out as an Iron Man villain. And then really? they used him in Captain America quite a bit, and then he landed in the Ghost Rider where he felt the best fit with a hero. But he was, was just like a contortionist who would break into places using his contortion powers, and later on he became a murderer using the same abilities. Yeah, I remember it was really weird. I, I think I read, that's the only one I could think of that I was just kind of like, oh, why am I reading this? I just want to stop reading. But yeah, I think I Lee Weeks drew that. that. That comes off my off the top of my head, really. Least favorite Captain America writer? You know, I'm trying to think because I didn't read a lot of like the Marvel Knights run, which was supposedly not very good. Real bad. <laughs> um, they recently announced that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale are going to finally reunite and tell their Captain America story in their color wheel type of stories that they've done. The unfortunately and, named White, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it reminded me of the Captain America Fallen Sun miniseries that Jeff Loeb wrote right after Cap was taken away. And that book was so bad, but I almost feel bad about singling it out because Jeff Loeb wrote that a few, like, shortly after his son died. Oh, and more the, than that, my understanding is the adapt his own eulogy yeah. for his son to the yeah. eulogy of Cap, which I, I get that. At the same time, it, it makes me deeply uncomfortable, and I, well, I, don't, I don't even feel comfortable talking about it. It's so such an odd choice to have made. I know, and it's just like it's like no, you're too close to this material. You can't approach this as a creative presence. This is just. You can't be working – well, I don't know. I, I don't want to say an, a creative person can't work their, through their personal issues into art because a lot of times that's how you get phenomenal art. But I think that was a case of he was just too close to it. And uh, yeah, that story was bad. Ooh, oh, I just – no, for some reason I started thinking of The Ultimates. When The Ultimates came out, I, I don't know. It must have been something about my mentality. I loved that book by Millar and Hitch. And over time, I've realized that I have cooled – Mark Millar should not work in any mainstream continuity. I don't want him to work at DC or Marvel ever again. I Actually, I don't care if he writes comics ever again because I, I don't think he even likes or cares about comics. He just comes up with intellectual properties that he can sell to movie studios. I really love that hard-boiled, ultra-realistic take on The Avengers when he did The Ultimates. When the book came out right after 9-11, I appreciated the ultra-reactionary chest-beating Man of War. And I tried to reread that looking back on it and hated his Captain America. <laughs> I understood the reasons why I liked it when I was reading it in like 2002 or right after 9-11 are the reasons why now I look at the dialogue he gave Cap and I cringe. It's so dated now, um, isn't it? Like when he's like in the line when he's like, you think this A on my forehead stands for France? I was like, okay, that's a really cheap line that'll get you some laughs, but it's also really stupid. And I think it flies in the face of what Captain America is about. So maybe the word worst cap writer is Mark Millar. I could say Mark Millar is the worst everything writer. Back in the early 90s, before he became the thing that he became, he was a pretty solid writer. He did, uh, 
people point to his Superman Adventures run as being solid Superman. It's just that he became that commercial entity and he likes the attention and he likes the money and he, I don't think he can stop if he wants to at this point. But there was a time where he was a valid creator. And I can see the point he was making at the time with the Ultimates. It's just that we're so far past the point where that was valid that it, you just can't really go back to that material anymore. And it's so on the nose. It's so obvious. It's so much the kind of conversations Kevin Smith would have on a podcast after a bowl of weed. <laughs> you know, it just it doesn't hold yeah. up great. It's great while you're on the weed. After the weed, the buzz passes. There's not a lot left there for you. I'm also going to say this now. I never liked Civil War. I didn't like that story. I think it's a good concept with a lousy execution. I, yeah, and that's that's what I would agree. Which is and why I'm hoping the movie will be good. I, I do too, and I think the differences that the movie are, or the, the deviations they're taking from the story will be helpful. Mac has been saying that he's more excited about Civil War than he was about Age of Ultron. After seeing Age of Ultron, I'm definitely more excited. But also, and not, not that I didn't like that movie, but I just I think that there will be a more cohesive story in Civil War. But I'm just so looking forward to it because I think this is going to be the most Marvel Universe movie ever. They're making a point of bringing everybody into it and then having them have an opinion and take a stand. And if they don't have General Talbot in this, I'm going to be so irritated. They have to have Talbot in there with General Ross. That would be cool. I, I, it would surprise me if they do because it seems like they're going out of their way to keep the TV universe separate, but it would be a nice little nod if they bring him in. Talbot makes more sense as part of Civil War as far as how they've portrayed that character in Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I just enjoy Adrian Pazdor's performance of the character so much mm-hmm. that I want to see him play off of William Hurt's General Ross. Yeah. Hurt has said that they're playing the character differently in this movie, and I'm curious to see <laughs> how they're going to do that. I fucking hope they don't make him Red Hulk. Oh, God, please I have don't. Please less than don't. zero interest in seeing Red Hulk in comics or on the screen. I think it was an okay idea for the comics. I think it played out, and then you need to like put it away. And Unfortunately, they haven't made that choice yet to just stop dealing with that material. Who's your favorite Captain America writer? Or do you have a favorite Captain America run? I don't think I do. I, I liked the Mark Wade, Ron Garney stuff. The Man Without a Country. Yeah, I, I liked the first run when Scott Koblish was inking Ron Garney. Yes. It That's made a huge difference Garner. when he stopped inking. Correct. Um, and it just the, the story, I thought they lost their vitality. I think that the year off after Heroes Were Born and trying to come back and rebuild that momentum, I don't think they ever quite got back to where they were when they were firing all cylinders in that first run. Yeah, I don't think I even read the second run. I think I only read that first run of theirs. I, I read some of it for a little while and then bits and pieces after a certain point. I can't tell you exactly when. I just wasn't interested because one of the first things they did was separating from his shield, and that was already a problem for me right there. And then was it Groom? Grunewald, who, who did the Kieran Dwyer's, Kieran Dwyer's first run? Yeah, that was Grunewald. That was Grunewald, right? I like the Grunewald, Kieran Dwyer stuff. I don't know if it's any good or if it holds up, but I enjoyed that stuff. I really liked the first few years where you had the Super Patriot story arc that led into the issues with the Council and U.S. Agent. And I really liked the Scourge of the Underworld stuff. I liked Cap's identity crisis after he killed the terrorists. So those first few years of Grunewald are great. And then he stays on way too long. <laughs> So that's probably it for me. I don't know if I, I really uh, – like a lot of the Zek stuff, I, I didn't really read a lot. That stuff's not easy to get, so I didn't re- really read a lot of that. I think – well, that's something we could explore on Marvel Unlimited then because I think a lot of that's on there. Same with the, the Steranko stuff. I never mm. read a lot of that. Yeah, see, the great thing with the Steranko stuff is I was introduced to Steranko's cap through his appearances in Strange Tales and the Nick Fury feature. So I, I always loved Steranko's take on cap. And then in the late 80s, I managed to get a hold of this – I think it was a two-issue bookshelf edition. They reprinted all the Stranko issues of Captain America because he only did like 
four or so of them. And so I got to see Steranko in his prime on cap. And I do love that stuff. I think that Stan Lee wrote for him or maybe Roy Thomas, but you're really there for the artwork. Mm, yeah, it looks like uh, Lee and Steranko for some of this early stuff. And then I also had the trade paperback Sentinel of Liberty that was put out by a book publisher. I can't remember the name right now. And it collected not only some of the Steranko stuff. So I, I'm remembering now that I was exposed to Steranko before those late 80s bookends, but it also had a lot of the key Lee Kirby material where he's doing stuff like fighting sumo wrestlers and using judo moves to fling sumo wrestlers around or where he's taking on freaking the Hulk and doing okay that made such an impression on me as a kid. Mm, see, yeah, so I don't know what, if, if there are any decent stretches of Captain I read. I never read any of the Captain America and the Falcon stuff. No, oh, that run that Christopher Priest did? No, no, no. That was no, after no, no. you left, right? Left the comics for the most part? Yeah, that was after I left. Yeah. It's really weak in the beginning because... Uh, Bart Sears' interpretation of priest scripts rendered them incomprehensible. But it, it got pretty good toward the end there, but it, it only got a little over a year run in. So uh, it's the second half is pretty good, though. I mean, the uh, late 60s, where they called it Captain America and the South. Oh, okay. So that's when John Romita did it, and I think Kirby picked it up in the mid-70s from that point. Busima, Busima. Dude, we're Salbushima, right? Yeah, uh, I yeah. Yeah, I don't think we ever got grace with John. No. And Sal, great Incredible Hulk artist, great Spider-Man artist, not so hot on Captain America. So the Falcon came off the cover in 1968. So I don't know how long it was on there, but it was on there for a while. Well, he came back in the 70s though, because I think throughout Kirby's run, he was still called Captain America and the Falcon. For real? I believe so. Yeah. Busima Novak Stern, Busima Milgram. Miller Springer Stern. Oh, by the way, if you're going by the credits on Marvel Unlimited, do not rely on those. those are they, are they not, shitty? These are not very reliable. No, those are sub-Wikipedia reliability. Boop. So yeah, how about you? Well, as I was mentioning, I got to read the reprints of Lee Kirby and Lee Steranko, but the one that really wrote me was J.M.D. Matisse and Mike Zek, because, and also Kerry Gamble was doing some work on Marvel Team Up and Marvel Fanfare around that same time period, and they're the ones that made me really love Captain America. I loved Zek's Cap so much, and DeMatteis is the guy who made Cap work for me, who made Steve Rogers a character I could relate to and appreciate and kind of made him something of a circuit father for me. Certainly a male role model when I was a young kid. I also liked a few years worth of Gruenwald stuff. I think he was mostly working with Paul Neary at that point, though. I, I think Dwyer was coming in toward the latter end of my interest in Gruenwald. I liked Mark Wade and Ron Garney on that first run. Um, I actually liked, if you, if you remember Heroes Reborn, everybody talks about how terrible the Rob Liefeld portion was, but on the flip side, the run by James Robinson and Joe Bennett, I think, is underrated. I, I thought that was a really nice run, and I enjoyed that more than a lot of the stuff that Wade did afterwards that does get still heralded. But I did like the Captain American Falcon series by Priest. I'm trying to think of some more recent stuff. The Avengers Disassembled tie-ins that Robert Kirkman and Scott Eaton did, those were pretty good. Having more trouble finding some of the more recent stuff though. I do want to say too, I like the Adventures of Captain America and Bucky miniseries that was done by Fabian Nicieza, Kevin McGuire, and I believe Steve Carr did the latter issues of that one. And just individual one-shots and things along those lines. But if I'm trying to find my sweet spot, my favorite run, it would be a Dimitis and Mike Zach. When, what, uh, when was JM on this book? He was there from the early 
the mid eighties. I was just scrolling through trying to find it on. Yeah, and I don't Marvel think Unlimited. he predated Zek by very much. So once you see the Zek covers start to pop up, it's pretty much all done by Dematisse until issue three hundred, and then that's when Jim Shooter screwed over the story arc that he was building towards, and he dropped the book immediately. And they had some fill-in guys, and eventually Mark Gruenwald took over. But Zek actually left a few months prior to that to go do Secret Wars, which was the second way in which Shooter screwed him over by taking his artists and leaving him with Paul Neary. Okay, so this is probably where you're right that the uh, credits are all jacked up because he, he did just do covers for a while right or yeah uh, from three from about 295 or somewhere in there until like the early 300s you know and i'm talking early like sometime between before 325 he was still doing the covers okay because he did a lot of iconic covers they didn't do the interiors for okay yeah so like this is a jm with uh mike zek and paul Beatty, but they uh listed as brunwald sharon albert something else yeah they're bad don't even ignore those uh no no that's because they're listing editor first mark Greenwald was the editor yeah, oh god that's it's, why it's such a mess how they've got that set up yeah that's stupid okay Okay, never mind. Yeah, I need to read some of this stuff. That covers Captain America runs you liked. Is there any writers or runs that you did not like? All that shitty Grunwald stuff where they put him in the armor and he was Cap Wolf and fucking Madcap and all that lame shit. Yeah, all that. Where uh, they redid his logo and make it all 90s and everything. Remember when it just did logo? They were like, Let's, we'll just change the logo. It was this giant metal block thing. Yeah, yeah, that was really bad. That was, terrible, I think, I, I do think that was the nadir of Captain America. I even think that that's worse than Heroes Reborn. I think that e- even, at least Heroes Reborn was kind of new and shiny and it was funny to make fun of Rob Liefeld and you did get to see some of the villains rendered in that fashion that imagey style which is something that was not going to happen with Captain America in the 90s otherwise but that tail end of Gruenwald with Rick Levins and Dave Hoover it was just everything oh, wrong Dave Hoover that's it right now yeah oh. he is my worst one I hate Dave Hoover's cap Dave so much Dave Hoover is, was the it was the hitting the nerve during my root canal that, that like triggered a <laughs> thing in my brain when you said Dave Hoover shout out Dave Hoover <laughs> Yeah, he does, like, porno stuff for eBay now and shit like that. Wait, what? Yeah, he'll draw, like, naked superheroines in pornographic circumstances for you on eBay now. That is unbelievably badass. (laughs) Much respect. (laughs) Well, the thing is, once he stopped trying to draw, like, an image artist, I wouldn't go so far as to say I enjoy his work, but it's more of a classic Bronze Age style, and it works well if you're into the sort of things he's drawing nowadays. Um, Yeah, that stuff was bad. Um, other than that, you know, like I, just, I just haven't read enough solo cap, solo cap to say this creator I liked, this creator I didn't like. Sorry. From the 2012 book Marvel Comics: The Untold Story by Sean Howe, timely publisher Martin Goodman didn't want to count on Lloyd Jacquet's studio alone, especially if they weren't going to come up with new hits. He quickly realized that it was possible to reduce the role of the profit-eating middleman. When Goodman had requested another hero in the vein of Human Torch, one of Jacquet's freelancers, Joe Simon, had risen to the occasion, creating the flame-shooting fiery mask. Now Goodman asked him to create new characters directly for Timely. Simon, a former newspaper cartoonist from Rochester, New York, was earning $7 per page from Funnies Incorporated. Goodman would pay him $12 per page and still spend less than he paid to Jaquette. Simon, always an astute businessman, took the money. Simon met a 21-year-old artist named Jacob Kurtzberg, a product of the Lower East Side slums. Kurtzberg found his escape in fantasy in Shakespeare, in movie matinees. The life-changing moment was the rainy day he saw a pulp magazine with an illustration of a forward-looking, futuristic object on the cover, floating down the gutter. He picked up the copy of Wonder Stories and stood transfixed, staring at this thing called a rocket ship. Kurtzberg threw himself into drawing his own stories, skilled, fast, and because he was the one putting money on the table for his parents and younger brother, eager to earn as much as he could. Impressed with Kurtzberg's talent and work ethic, Simon soon conscripted him as a partner in his freelance endeavors. Kurtzberg signed a pseudonymous name he would soon adopt permanently and legally, Jack Kirby. 
Goodman encouraged more submissions from Simon and Kirby. After they introduced Marvel Boy and the Vision, Simon sketched out a variation on MLJ's comics Star-Spangled Hero, The Shield. At the bottom of the page, he wrote Super American. Then he reconsidered and changed the name to Captain America. Sensing Captain America's great potential, Simon negotiated a special deal with Timely through Maurice Coyne, the company's chief accountant. Not only did he agree to the 25% royalty rate, which Simon would split with the artist, but he also asked Simon to come on board full-time as an editor. Goodman would still need to pay Funnies Incorporated for his two biggest characters, the Human Torch and the Submariner, but he could get Simon to pad out the line at a huge savings. Simon soon asked Jack Kirby to come work for Goodman full-time. When Simon handed out assignments, brainstormed titles with Goodman, designed logos, and contributed to the pulp magazines, Jack sat and drew all day. When Simon prepared to assign the penciling of Captain America to a team of freelancers, Kirby told him not to bother. He'd get it done on time by himself. While Captain America number one was at the printers, a tall teenage cousin of Gene Goodman traveled down from the Bronx to the timely offices for the first time. He opened the door to a tiny waiting room and gave his name, Stanley Lieber, to the secretary at the window. Simon interviewed the teenager, who didn't seem to know much about comic books but was very eager. And of course he was a relative of the boss. Simon hired him. Captain America number one sold a near Superman number of one million copies, exceeding everyone's expectations. While Kirby hummed to himself, cranking out pages behind a cloud of cigar smoke, Stanley would empty ashtrays, sweep floors fetch coffee, and erase pencil marks from inked pages. Sometimes he would get to proofread, and often, to the consternation of his older co-workers, he would break the silence with an ocarina. After a month or two, Simon gave Stanley a break, or maybe it would be better described as busy work. Text features were needed to qualify for magazine postal rates. Simon told him to write a short Captain America story that would be accompanied by two panels of illustration. He turned in 26 ham-fisted paragraphs with the title Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge, which he signed with a pseudonym so as not to derail his future career as a serious writer. The byline read, Stan Lee. With Captain America riding high and titles multiplying, the daily grind at Timely was demanding. But Simon and Kirby were natural hustlers, and they continued to quietly freelance for other companies, even as they were hiring additional staff at Timely. It was a smooth arrangement, until Maurice Coyne came to Simon and told him that Goodman was shorting him and Kirby on their royalties. Nearly all the Timely overhead was being deducted from Captain America's profits. Instead of confronting Goodman, Simon and Kirby called Jack Leibowitz at DC Comics, who'd already made clear his interest in them. Leibowitz told them that they could make $500 a week with DC. They rented a cheap room at a nearby hotel and worked after hours developing projects for Timely's competition. They may have pushed their moonlighting too far, though, when they started going to the hotel room on lunch hours. Stan grew nosy, and then suspicious, and insisted on tagging along to lunch. The extracurricular activity didn't remain a secret for long. Within days, the Goodman brothers surrounded Simon and Kirby for a confrontational firing. Kirby was convinced that Stan had ratted them out. The next time I see that little son of a bitch, he told Simon, I'm going to kill him. The Goodman brothers decided to take advantage of the eager protege in their midst, at least until they found someone new. At 18 years of age, Stan Lee found himself the editor of a major comic book company. Throughout the war, Captain America was the company's best-selling title, a leader in a field that was rapidly growing. The average print run of a timely book during the war, recalled Vince Vago, approached a half million per issue. Sometimes he'd put out five books a week or more. You'd see the numbers come back and could tell that Goodman was a millionaire. Comic book trends were changing at a whiplash speed. Post-war America, suddenly obsessed with the plague of juvenile delinquency, began to pry crime-themed comics from the hands of its youths and, noticing the sultry adulteresses and violent toughs within, figured it had found a smoking gun. Meanwhile, superheroes had waned in popularity, lacking both Axis enemies and a dedicated readership of U.S. servicemen. Lee called for Captain America's sidekick, Bucky Barnes, to be shot. By the end of 1949, the Human Torch and Submariner had vanished, and Captain America remained only in name. Captain America's Weird Tales was a bizarre horror title in which the Captain himself was nowhere to be found. Captain America! You cannot beat me! <laughs> Avengers Assemble! The Avengers! This is Siskoid. 
Originally, I liked teams. I started on teams, and I think a lot of my initial impetus for reading comics or choosing series was, are there a lot of characters on the cover? Does it seem to have a lot of characters in there? Because I wanted to immerse myself in these universes, and I wanted as many characters as possible to learn to find more heroes. I just wanted more, more, more. So my first Captain America stories were probably in Avengers and Secret Wars were probably my first real contact with Captain America. I remember by number 300 where it's Mike Zek and he's fighting the Red Skull and I think the Red Skull dies in that issue dies in quotation marks at some point I decided to invest in solo heroes and that's when I started buying Captain America and Iron Man and Thor not necessarily at a point where they were at their best but that time in my life and those first issues I read Captain America for quite a while but it was the point where he was getting replaced by uh, Walker uh, and you know taking on the black uniform form and calling himself the captain. And then I got the whole run, the Mark Gruenwald era of the book. And I stayed with it for a good while. I don't know when I stopped. No, Ron Lim. Yeah, I remember the, the Ron Lim. And there was like, uh, you know, some bi-monthly issues in there. I got those. I did not get the Cap Wolf. It was Kieran Dwyer who replaced the English fellow whose name escapes me at the moment. Kieran Dwyer was the one who was drawing it during the whole Johnny Walker period. Right. And then I think he was replaced by Ron Lim and... I'm trying to remember if there was anybody between Ron Lim and Rick Levins. But Ron Lim, I think he exited sometime around the time of that big anniversary issue with the copper-colored ink cover, uh, him holding the flag. And I think at some point after that, that's when Rick Levins came on. Well, when Marvel went really gimmicky, the the 90s Marvel, that's when I bailed. I brought up the Grand Comic Book Database. I'm looking at the Captain America Gallery Actually, you know what? My very first Captain America stories were in those black and white French language jumbo books. And it was the second Kirby era. Ah, the 70s stuff. With the Falcon. Those were my actual first Captain America stories. Arnim Zola is a villain for a while. It's those batch of issues. Uh, and there's like this fascist, I don't remember the name, who overfeeds. He's um, like the swine or his, something, if I remember correctly. That Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So that issue was in there. When I read that, I must have been nine or ten. And that stayed with me for a long while. The shock horror of it, overfeeding someone whose stomach had shrunk. And that was my first Captain America story. I think I remember reading reading that one. I didn't have the complete story, but I think I picked up that back issue from another kid in a trade or something. The one thing I remember is that it was an ex-Nazi, and I think he had people in literal ovens. I want to say he was called the Swine, because I think the story had incorporated that name into it or something. Right. I think my last Captain America storyline was Streets of Poison. That's the Ron Lim era. Where he gets coked up on super drugs and beats up Daredevil. Right. And there's crossbones in there. And then the next issue after that, 379 is November 1990. I think that's where I stopped. 378 is possibly my last issue, and I might even have stopped in the middle of Streets of Poison Mm -hmm. when I dropped all the Marvel books. I've always liked the character, and I know it's bizarre that a Canadian would, you know, particularly like Captain America, a patriotic hero from another country. Well, see, that's the thing. As I used to have that mindset, you may remember that Marvel was really concerned in releasing Captain America the First Avenger, especially after the Iraq War, that a lot of countries were really not happy with some of the stuff we'd gotten up 
to after 9-11. They thought there was going to be a lot of resistance. And the movie did okay, and then the sequel did really well internationally. But I used to have this same mindset where it's like, well, why would they care about an American superhero? But the thing is, I've always thought Captain Britain was a cool-looking character, and I always wanted to read his stories, and I never actually enjoyed his stories. But I, I like the idea of a Captain Britain. Now, I like a lot of international heroes. I get off on seeing characters that are from a completely different country, especially if they originate there. So it's not awful stuff like, hey, she's from Ireland, let's call her Shamrock. Because it gives me some insight into the country, I think, and, and I like seeing different perspectives on superheroes. I've given up on worrying what about whether or not somebody would like Captain America just because he's from America. I think he's just a great hero, and he's one of the more principled, idealistic heroes out there. And he's one of the few guys that's managed to sustain for decades without being overly tainted by the demands of modernity. Even when he is involved in very uh, stories of the moment, there's still a timelessness to them because he's addressing somewhat eternal issues and he's addressing them from a morally relatable place regardless of country of origin regardless of the ba your basic ideology he's tending to reflect the best aspects of whatever your belief system would likely be anyway and most superheroes are americans anyway mm -hmm. so why would i treat captain america why would i you know just because he's a because he wears the flag why would i judge him by some other standard yeah and union it jack is one of the baddest looking motherfuckers out there too i love that costume <laughs> yeah so, that's a good costume yeah he, he so he's from england he's a badass englishman cool tell me more he, he kills vampires even better keep going yeah yeah how are you introduced to him dude it wasn't even comics i think captain america i believe i had back in the days the hot wheel cars and i had the captain america one I remember seeing the Captain America movie because we saw the Spider-Man TV movie. And I remember seeing the Captain America when we actually wore the bike helmet. I didn't pick up my first Captain America comic until, um, I, let's see, what got me in the comics was Hulk and the X-Men. A uh, little bit down the line, really. You reminded me of when you said the Hot Wheels cars. I cannot for the life of me remember which one I owned. But at, at least one of those three characters, Cap, Hulk, or uh, Spider-Man, they made these vans. And they had a little window at the back yeah. of the van. And yeah. you look into it and yeah. you'd see. I even had the, I had the Dr. Octopus one. I uh -huh. believe there was a Doc Ock and the Cap. There was one other one. And then I had a bunch of other ones. But that's how I knew who Captain America was because he was on the side. Uh -huh. I knew who that was. But I knew the X-Men and Hulk because I was reading the comics and G.I. Joe. Yeah, I was reading those kind of comics. I believe the first Captain America comic I ever read was the one where he killed Baron Blood. Oh, yeah. Classic. I remember someone gave me that. And I remember seeing the cover and they were like, oh, you'll dig this, dude. And I'm like, I, I knew who Captain America was. I saw him pop in the Avengers, but I never read his own book. Read that. I'm like, holy shit. Like, this was cool. And I, I kind of picked it up sporadically, but I didn't. I wasn't full cat, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was cool shit. But I remember that because I still own that issue to this day. How was I introduced to Captain America? Um, you know, it's one of those things where because of the era in which I grew up, just kind of like late 80s, early 90s, getting into comics at that time, I, I was a grunge kid and I thought patriotic heroes were stupid. I didn't like Captain America. I didn't like Superman. I thought they were lame. I thought they were old-fashioned. So he was never really on my radar. And occasionally I would dabble into Avengers comics when they crossed over with the X-Men comics that I was much more of an X-Men fan at the time. I would say I had a grudging respect for the character because I knew that I was supposed to because everybody else in the Marvel Universe always talked about him like he was really important. So I, I just, I knew that he was a big deal, but he really didn't appeal to me. It was much later, it was when I was in college that I started sampling his comics. It was post 9-11, and I tried to get into some of his books, and I, I was surprised, and I, I know that you have vastly different feelings about this particular run, but really, it was the Ed Brubaker run that got me into the character. It was the Winter Soldier storyline when he started. That was the first time that I saw a Captain America that felt 
felt a little bit grounded and urban and take charge and kick ass. I don't, I don't know. I, I had misconceptions of him, but that Captain America felt less like it was up its own ass with the symbolism and it was more credible. So that was kind of my gateway. So that was what I started reading and I liked the character. And then based on that, I started going back to the older source material and I picked up the essential Captain America, which reprinted the 60s stuff by Stanley and Jack Kirby. And I loved that. And it couldn't be further apart. They're very different types of storytelling, but I really appreciated them both. And since then, I've, I've just been, I've been buying more and more and reading some of his Bronze Age stuff, the stuff after the John Byrne run, which was pretty short and abbreviated because they had issues, like creative issues, not the, the comic book issues. I think they were brushing up against Jim Shooter, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, and Shooter's dictum about how, how long the stories could be and what, when they needed to wrap up their story, their kind of cliffhanger approaches. It was, it was a weird approach. Like, I, I hated him. I had no time for him as a kid. And once I became an adult with, I, I think more of a sense of, class and dignity, then I really appreciate the character for what he is. And now he is one of my favorite Marvel characters. I was really weary and nervous about how he would be approached in the films. I didn't think they could pull him off uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Before Captain America the First Avenger came out, I thought it was going to be a train wreck. I knew that Joe Johnson was directing it, and the movie that he did before that, I think, was The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro, which was a god-awful movie. I saw it in the theater, and yes... Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I did too, and I considered walking out on that movie at several points, um, especially because Benicio Del Toro campaigned for that movie. He really wanted to make that movie, and he was fighting for it, and it looked like he was sleepwalking through the whole thing. But anyway, so I didn't have a lot of confidence in the movie going in, and then it just blew me away with how it, it embraced the source material, it embraced the period, the era, it felt uplifting, it felt heroic, it was the things that I wasn't getting from Superman movies and Superman comics at the time, and this was pre-Man of Steel. What I found is a lot of Superman fans are frustrated by how far people have run away from the classic style Superman, and they look at how well they're doing Captain America and how faithfully it drives them nuts from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. And we, we disagree on this. I thought Captain America was ill-served by the Avengers movie. I just thought that Joss Whedon didn't know what to do with the character, that it was already crowded, and he just prioritized Captain America last. I didn't think Cap had much to do outside of the action scenes, but he was fine. So it was really the Winter Soldier that blew me away, That the movie, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, because that did what the Avengers needed to do for Captain America, was that it established who this guy is in the 21st century and why the world still needs him. That is absolutely what needed to happen, and that's what the Winter Soldier did perfectly. And I think that's why that's probably my favorite of the Marvel movies so far. And then the Avengers Age of Ultron continued that trend. I think Joss Whedon totally got what makes Captain America special in that movie. Even though he doesn't necessarily have the same flashy storylines that Hawkeye or Tony Stark or the Vision have, I think Cap is kind of the uncredited MVP in that movie. Joss really gets to the heart of the character and why he's necessary, why this is his story. And I would point to the signature moment when the massive landmass is being dropped at the very end. Cap is the last one to get on the evacuation transport. He's the first boots on the field and last man off. And I was like, that is the soldier that Captain America is. And it was a great underscored moment for the character. One thing they so. did nice in Age of Ultron was that it felt like Tony was siding with the old Avengers, that he, it was basically him and, and Banner kind of off doing their own thing. And they immediately had Cap hook into the new Avengers, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, and give them yep. a reason why they would trust him, get the audience on his side versus Tony. Mm-hmm. 
when they cast Chris Evans, I thought it was a huge mistake because I had seen him as Johnny Storm in the crappy first Fantastic Four movies, and I saw him in a movie called London where he was a drug addict. Decent movie, but I was like, this guy is going to be your Captain America? No way, because I looked at him, I was like, he is going to have to be in the same room as Robert Downey Jr. and Samuel L. Jackson, and he is going to have to stand up and be the man. And I was like, and they're going to swallow him up with their star power. And I have not seen that. I mean, he is living and breathing in this character in a way I wouldn't have thought possible. They defer to him in every scene in the Avengers Age of Ultron. He has become that character. It's really impressive. It's interesting, too, because there is an element of charisma there, but a lot of it is just that the other guys are acting so hard. And then he's just sort of quiet. He lets them do their thing. And then he just kind of steps up and tells how it's actually going to be. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of power to be had in that. He doesn't have to be showy like the other guys are. It's just when it comes down to the crunch, he's that guy. I definitely agree. I, do, I wasn't sure about Chris Evans. I was rooting for, I was still under the, the star power mentality. So I wanted Matt Damon or Brad Pitt. In fact, I mm-hmm. just saw a little bit of Troy where he's doing the fight with Eric Bana and they're doing all that shield work. And I was thinking, yeah, I can still see Cap there, but not so much anymore because I don't think that Brad Pitt could have played the character of Steve Rogers nearly as well as Chris Evans has. Especially after Matthew McConaughey, I was just happy that they didn't go that far wrong in their casting when he was originally cast and then once he actually appeared in the movies I started to turn around my opinion on him and really respect him as an actor plus if you haven't seen Snowpiercer I highly recommend that as well I've heard good things about that. I haven't seen it yet. It's an excellent, um, excellent movie, yeah. and he's great in it. I remember when the Star Trek came out in 2009, the J.J. Abrams one. Hardly anybody remembers this, but Chris Hemsworth played Kirk's dad in the opening scene of that, in like the little prologue. And he's clean-shaven. He had short blonde hair. And I remember seeing him, and I'd never seen him before that. But when I saw that, I was like, this guy would be an awesome Captain America. And then it was like two weeks later, he's playing Thor. I was like, wait, no, no. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait you, you missed it. Put him, make him Captain America. Well, but, I, but I almost that's playing almost too much too type because he did have that square jawed, steely gaze action hero thing going on in that sequence where I think that there's a little bit of humor in Evans that I don't think he would have had with Hemsworth. Hemsworth humor is different and that type of humor wouldn't have worked for Cap the way it works for Thor. That's a so good point. Ultimately, these guys know what they're doing and I, I got to respect them for that. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the comics, because um, I, I imagine that'll probably be more of your focus. Yeah, I, I have grown to really like Captain America. He is one of these. I mean, my I, I change my lists all the time because I have OCD that way. But he's always in my top five favorite Marvel heroes. I, I went out and I got the omnibus of Jack Kirby's second run when he came back in the 70s. Yeah, it's great. Like, I, I, I yeah, I, I would like to see a Mad Bomb storyline in one of these one of these movies. But I think there's there's little time for that. We received new Twitter follows from Angry Old Man Podcast, Backman Bro, Carlos, Chris, Daily Dead News, El Hino, Haft at Smolomir751, Ken Kalat, the KYHBB, Mode Aslam Ansari, Pod Underground, Poorly Summarized Podcast, The Pop Culture Pit, The Randomitable, Shudham Holsar, 
Skylar, Sahara, Samurai Bear SBC, Untitled by Mike One, and Young God Fearful, as well as a WordPress blog follow from Rob Deb, Facebook likes from Keith G. Baker and Martin Gray, retweets from Ange, Keith G. Baker, Paul Joshua T. Ariza, and Jag Matthews, plus Twitter favorites from Anthony Miyazaki PhD, App Tasket, Behind the Magic Podcast, Body Count Rising, Count Drugula, David Fior, Monsters and Mystics, My Social Fam, Odell Abner Dracula, Over Newser Movies, The Park Fanatic Podcast, and Party Roll Podcast. Marvel Unlimited is so badass. It's so badass. I was talking to uh, Count Drunkula about it, and he discontinued his service. He just couldn't bring himself to spend the $70 a year because he hadn't been using it since he's been doing so much DC stuff uh, because he's got that Secret Origins podcast now. And what I said is that $70 a year, I will go for months without even going to the Marvel yeah. Unlimited apps. And it doesn't matter because it's so cheap per month. And I want to know that whenever I want to pick up a Marvel comic book that's on that uh, uh, option, I, I want to be able to turn it on and just go right to it and not deal with any bullshit. No like, passwords. I don't have to pay anybody anything. It's already taken care of. I was. Uh, are you recording or not? Yeah, I so and I posted this on our on our Twitter account to see if anybody would be interested. I'm like I'm interested in people's opinions on this bullshit. So torrenting comic books. I actually got into a fucking argument with a guy who tried to uh, justify why he should be able to steal comic books online. Mm. And his first excuse was, well, because you know I I gave them so much money from 1981 to night to 1996, and I got a bunch of shitty refractive covers out of it, whatever bullshit. So now he feels like it's okay for him to pirate all those comic books that he already. And then he's like, and I already own all those um, most of the comics i read anyway and i was like well first of all that's bullshit nobody only pirates the shit they only have if you're pirating shit you're pirating shit i don't sit there and think that you have some moral compass where you're only good you know what i mean like so if you i, I don't know to try and say that somehow you know that you've got a run of captain america 225 through 229 and you could just torrent 230 but you're gonna skip it because it's not in your collection that's a bunch of bullshit that's false uh and then second of all he was like i like to have my he actually said this he likes to have his uh collection on his tab tablet ordered a certain way and because he wants it ordered a certain way marvel unlimited couldn't provide that for him so he refuses to pay for marvel marvel unlimited and he illegally torrents them instead and i'm like dude just fucking say you're a cheap ass and you don't mind steal you have a moral compass but it goes awry when it comes to stealing shit online just just say you're a shithead and you steal that stuff online don't try and bullshit me that it just doesn't it, it does it's not arranged in a format that i like like that's complete bullshit that's stupid it's too cheap for you to tell me that that's the reason you know I, I, you got an argument for me. I, uh, I it's not that I've never sought out comics online, but usually it's reference for a blog or a podcast or something. Not something I actually wanted to own. Not something that I even necessarily wanted to talk about. I might have been doing it because somebody else wanted to talk about it. But I still buy comic books. I, I'm a big fan of trade paperbacks, sure. But I still put money into this industry because I know that if I stop putting money in this industry, it will not exist anymore. They will not continue to produce right. comics if I don't put in the cash. I right. I get the Marvel Unlimited app. The thing is, I wasn't buying Marvel comics before that app. I and I've read a lot more Marvel comics because I have that app. But that I, and I pay for them. I pay for that service. I pay for what they. You know, it, it's a mutually beneficial transaction. I wasn't going to buy these comic books anyway, and. And they're getting paid. They're making some money off of me reading the comics that I do choose to read. Uh, I wish the DC had a similar app, but I don't buy a lot of DC comics anymore either. So it doesn't matter if they don't want to give me an app like this to read their books. I just don't need to read their books, period. And I don't oftentimes. Um, but there's stuff that's out of print, stuff that you can't find anywhere. And if I can find it online, that's fine.
fine because I feel like that's a victimless crime because if the demand's there and the product isn't and there's nobody who could be making money off of it anyway, that's okay. But if if you've got new comics that are being produced by people that are still trying to make a living at this, you need to support them or you're a fucking thief. It's just that simple. Right. Well, and, and then his, the other bullshit that I got from someone was that, well, I already – you know, if I own it in one form, I'm somehow entitled to it in another form, which is also bullshit. Like just because you own a VHS of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, that doesn't entitle you to walk into Target and steal the Blu-ray. That, well, that see, I think, I think so, that's a little bit more gray though because uh, – you know. If I if I in fact I still own a lot of these comic books, and if I want to have them in a digital format, thankfully Marvel has been fairly comprehensive. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that isn't on there that I still have to own as a floppy comic. And if I really want to, I can take that floppy comic, scan it, and then I'll still have that copy, and that's still legal because I own that comic book. Correct. Um, my issue is when you're depriving the industry of money that it needs to survive, especially for newer comic books and even older books. If it's a book that's in print that you can buy from the publisher and keep them going and keep them producing books you need to do that otherwise you're just thieving and you're also uh part of the problem you're part of what's killing that industry so if, well, if you don't support the art you don't get to enjoy the art well and then and another point was that well he tried to say that it's the same thing as just up you know burning a disc into an mp3 and i'm like that's not the same thing uh if you want to take your own comic book flatten it out on a scanner and scan it that's the same thing but downloading super high resolution super crisp perfectly colored issues that took people's time to scan them to get because a lot of these comics you know these are comics from the 60s and 70s they were not digital first a lot of the stuff nowadays are probably almost 100 percent digital you know what i mean they can be drawn digitally colored digitally well and, and a lot just, of stuff that's on the marvel app too are from the original files from the fiches and then they've been reproduced so they look a lot different actually that's sometimes the problem is they look so different from the originals because they're so crisp and clear and because the coloring is so good that they don't look right um but you're right a lot of the ones that are online are scans from their physical comic books that they have to clean up and make look presentable. Right. So that that takes time. That, that's that's man hours. Um, all of this data has to sit on a server somewhere. Marvel has to pay to maintain this server. That to pay people to maintain the app. That to maintain. You know what I mean? This, there are continuing costs that go on Marvel Unlimited. So I don't think that somehow Marvel's getting over on people for making them pay for comic books they already have, as if like, oh no, the creator already created this comic book. So that way, that means that they're just making all this money with no overhead. I'm like, that's completely bullshit like this app takes it costs money every month for marvel to keep going and continuing to upload new stuff because that's the thing is like oh well, you know they got all the old back issues done so now they just add new stuff because it's already all digital uh, it doesn't cost them anything why should i pay them any money for that and i'm like dude this is quit trying to justify stealing mm. shit like just say i prefer to steal it it sucks uh i'd rather just save the 70 bucks a year and and that's fine and then i'll judge you and you can do whatever you want just don't try and twist it you know what i mean don't try and justify it to me it's fucking stealing you're fucking stealing this shit if you're if you've torrented twenty thousand comic books, you're a fucking thief and you stole twenty thousand comic books. You can't justify it to me any other way. It's like I'm sorry. Just come to terms with I can come to grips with you being a thief, you need to come with grips with being a thief. <laughs> well like, every, like, everybody wants back. to be a hero in their own mind. Right, right, right. Just no no no, I'm this is more like they try and change it to some fucking moral victory. Like it's some moral victory that they're getting over on the comic book industry. Of all the industries to try and get over on. It's just oh it's, it's well I, I, I mean this guy was arguing with This is an industry of gangsters and thieves and stuff, so I I guess in that way there is something of a of a of a spiral there of of, of moral chaos, 
But um, here's the thing: when when you had stuff like Napster and LimeWire and stuff, and that the music was available to you easily, that was at a time when the recording industry was very healthy, and it appeared like that material was actually helping to to elevate sales on artists. But now we've seen the consequences. Ultimately, you've got a, a whole culture now of people that expect to get everything for free. They expect not to have to pay for anything, and it's a culture of piracy. And obviously, that is very damaging. And if you uh, contribute to that. And if you try to uh, become create moral equivalencies that allow you to do that and you feel good about it, that's a crutch. That's a coping mechanism for you to deal with the fact that you're a fucking thief. You're a parasite who's destroying multiple industries. If you want art to be made, you have to have patrons. I like, I know people like to think that artists just worked and created the art for art's sake and that's all there was to it. But if you look throughout history, most art, in some ways, commercial art, all these guys need somebody to support them. Art cannot exist in a vacuum. Art doesn't just happen and certainly it doesn't get to you, the consumer, in Boise, Idaho or where the hell ever without somebody creating a mechanism of delivery. Somebody has to create it and somebody has to get it to you and you need to pay for that or you're a fucking parasite. Agreed. Well, and that's what like I'll have people tell me now because I was talking with a guy at work and he was wanting me to kind of coach him up on how to set up like a cloud because he still has all this shit on like memory cards that he swaps in and out and he was like, he was like, so how did you do that? I'm like, you know, I just upload all my music to a cloud and now I can access it whenever. And uh, and I was like, and the great thing is whenever I buy an album on you know Google Play, whenever it goes on sale for $2.99 and I, and it, I was like, it goes straight to my cloud. And he was like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I torrent all my stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I was like, yeah, I haven't done that since like 1998. Like I stopped doing that a long time ago. I'm like, hey, but, you know, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not judging you. If that's what you want to do. That, that's what you can do. But uh, so you're, and people are still out there doing it, and it's, it's, it just seems crazy. Like, oh, it, it's know, gotten I, I, so I, much easier than it was back in those days. It used to be you'd spend hours trying to get one song downloaded, yeah. and now you can get an entire discography in no time. Well, um, and, and, and in fact, that's part of my problem is there's so much stuff that can just be dumped onto your computer that you don't have the time or the energy to sort through all that mess. Well, and, and conversely, it's easier to get the stuff you pay for too. Exactly. Like I literally, I literally just press a button, and even if I'm buying the CD, Amazon will dump a digital version of the album into my cloud. Right. Like right. I don't even have to burn it anymore. So to me, that shit's just too easy for for an album that I'm going to listen to for probably a couple months. What? Why do I need to steal? Like, I'm going to get plenty of use out of it. Right. For, for like I said, and I wait for it to go on sale for three ninety nine or four ninety nine. Um, I can spend four ninety nine. I lose four ninety nine once a month. You know what I mean? Like I, I will lose that. I'll drop it somewhere or I'll buy something shitty that I didn't intend to and then forget to ever return it. Yeah. That's the same way with Marvel Unlimited. I lose $70 a year. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's $70. The pocket change cup. you never get around to spending it. It goes, gets thrown in a jug or the hand off to somebody who's got their hand out on the way out of, a, of the place you just got the change at. That's $70 easily in a year. Right. That's why I, I was like, I can't, you know, especially for such a large library that's continuously being added to, uh, I, you know, I just can't, I, I cannot do it. So I was like, now I can finally like, you know, what is the, the Hickman run or whatever the fuck fix it always says you know the, the, oh, the fed has a run i can actually yeah. read that shit now which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. yeah they're really comprehensive on the modern day stuff it's when you get to the older and more obscure stuff that it gets a little frustrating and it's not perfectly ordered i can understand where somebody would have some issues with that but that doesn't give you a license to just steal the crap to steal and stick 20, it in your... 30, 000 comic books yeah i don't think so yeah. okay sorry buddy so yeah anyway, <laughs> so there's no actual counter argument because we're in agreement with one another good but, but I, I haven't heard a counter argument that i could buy into anyway so but i, I think this would be an interesting episode if we asked a few of our other uh, 
super fucking whatever we're calling them people. No, honestly, my thinking is that they would be like Sherry O'Terry and that we would be like the two Night of the Roxbury guys knocking them back and forth between us because I don't think that there's an argument there that you come out looking good. A counter argument, I mean. Sounds so. hot. Well, I mean, but, but they may have a story or uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I've been calling them mushps. mushps. Yeah. Are the, the listeners. Secret agents of Marvel? Marvel shoops. What the fuck is that? Like Marvel superhero podcast. Oh, I thought you meant like the uh, salt and pepper song. Shoop, shoop, doop, or the uh, baby face slash Whitney Houston song. Yeah, yeah, no, none of that. Where we don't, we've never actually. Honestly, uh, I know that for some people they feel a sense of inclusion when you do that. They feel like they're part of a club. For me, I just find it. I, I think it's a little condescending. Honestly, it's like no, you no, listen no, but- to the show and you like the show and that's great. The, do we have to give you some sort of a weird? Uh, arbitrary name for that? I don't understand. Yeah, but but you have the the wild agents of Marvel, right? Isn't that what you were calling them? Whenever well, you no, some- but, yeah, but I do that because those are the guys who've actually like come on to an episode of the show and are or like basically the spotlight of the show is them talking about their experiences. I don't know that uh, that just the general listener would want to be associated with wild agents of Marvel. I mean, well, you I had the Marching Society. I mean, we do the little Marvel Marching Society thing as part of our our social media deals, so maybe that. Well, I just meant you ask uh, Druncula or whoever, and they can. Skype in and give their opinion. Yeah, well, and I said that uh, too. Is I've got like two or three other guys that I've talked to like in November of last year that still need to become Marvel, uh, Wild Ages of Marvel, and I just haven't edited their episodes yet. So, so I, got, oh, I haven't forgotten I... you, and you're actually going to air. It just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and now the Merry Marvel Marching Society, folks who favorite, retweet, and otherwise help to promote us on social media. They include the 108th Sage. Ashley Rose, Bone Dragon Comics, Charlton Hero, CJ, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Dr. G Nerdologist, Drunken Dork Podcast, Future Primitive Comic, The Illegal Formation Podcast, Joseph Crawford, Kevin Dodgy, Legiticus, Marvel Incorporated 2099, Out of the Fridge, the Penultimate, Randy Caldwell, Selfie Matic, Siskoid, Senate Alias Scarecrow, Timan Bob, Too Dangerous for a Girl Blog, Tracker Talk, Valentinos Orfanos, and Warlord Worlds Podcast. The Marvel Superheroes Podcast is in no way affiliated or endorsed by Marvel Entertainment. All characters mentioned and audio clips employed are believed covered under fair use, but remain copyright the respective copyright holders. But of course, the views expressed are wholly owned by the people who spoke them. No infringement is intended. March along, march along, march along to the song of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. If you growl, if you groan, and your star is nearly zero, do not howl, do not moan, you can be a superhero marching right along to the fighting song of the Merry Walk a little prouder, be an innovator, laugh a little louder, grow forever greater, we can show you how to...
Frank, since we were kind of all over the place during my answers to your Captain America questions, I figured I would rethink my responses and give a much more streamlined and clarified responses that you can insert into your episode. Um, you can ditch whatever we said before, unless you can find something in there that's still relevant. Um, okay, as best as I can remember, uh, favorite Captain America villain? Pff, fucking Modok, man. Look at him. He's a giant head floating around on a rocket with spindly little arms and legs who shoots lasers from his head. He's a mental organism designed only for killing, which is not accurate, but that doesn't matter. Fucking Modok. Ooh, um... Okay, I got to sort of sidetrack because actually I don't. That, um, but I. Oh man. Okay, so they make him Red Hulk. They turned um, Rick Jones into something like the Abomination. They turned Betty into Red She-Hulk or something. They turned Basically, every character, every one of Bruce Banner's supporting characters became a version of the Hulk. And it's sort of that idea when everyone is special, no one is special. When all of your foils look the exact same as the character, as the hero, then there's, yeah, you just, you lose everything that makes it special. Um, so I, yeah, I hated that idea. Um, well, that and one of the things I hated about the Hulk growing up as a kid is that they always found some big stupid monster for him to fight. It was always a monster of the month kind of book. And then when you surround him with nothing but exactly similar monsters to the Hulk, like you said, there's just what's compelling about that. What makes me want to read that? Huh? Uh, how did I? I lost you. Oh man, really? What the hell is going on? Internet connection problem. There's a problem with the internet connection between you two. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> I've been a Thanos fan for so long. You know this for a fact. Yeah. I talked about Thanos before Thanos was even, even before Infinity Gauntlet. I always just thought Thanos was such a cool character, you know, someone obsessed with death, uh, you know, wiped out his own planet. I know, I'm sure there's some parts of that story stolen for, uh, stolen for Thanos from, um, was it Despero? Dark Side. Who? Dark Side. No, I thought, that, didn't Despero do that shit where he killed off his own people? Oh, you're, I think you're thinking of Lobo. No, but Despero too, didn't he? No, Despero didn't which kill his the, own people. Lobo killed off the, all the other Zarnians. Oh, yeah. No, no. Which which book did you give me where the character, the villain, is like bashing his skull in to kill his baby sibling? The, oh, Mongol. Mongol. There you go. Mongol. Yeah. yeah, but he didn't kill his own people. He just killed his own infant ch- brother. That's right. He had War World. I'm, I get him all mixed up. Holy shit, I got mixed up. But yeah, don't cut that out. Cut all that out. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I, I forgot the point. So never mind. Let's move on. But um, yeah, no, I know Captain America is an odd choice for a Canadian, perhaps. But um, it's really about the ideals. I think my, my teenage politics, whatever they were, respected his <coughs> idea of America, if you will. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just I'm loving how you're trying to talk about all these high-minded ideals, and then Max making all these rude noises in the background. <laughs> it's just a nice contrast there. It's like some some '80s movie where somebody's making a speech and somebody's making farting noises, you know, behind the podium or something. Yeah, I'm picturing like Commandant Lassard in the police academy getting a blowjob while he's trying to give the. Uh, <laughs> Commencement speech for the Academy people. Anyway, yeah. uh, I think Captain, Captain America is just cool. Hi, Mac. I just came into a really weird part of this conversation. <laughs> you contributed uh, to it unknowingly. Whoa! Well, we heard the, there was a lot of noise, like uh, like some sort of xenomorph ripping and 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 crunching <laughs> and and just things were ripping in ways that we weren't expecting. That's As my I was, nutri- that's my Nutrigrain bar dinner. Oh, there you go. Hello. You there? Yeah, I'm still with you. I'm listening. 
I feel like I always uh, I feel like I had, just haven't read enough Captain America stuff. I feel like I'm a bad American. Is that weird? <laughs> you're you're lesser because you haven't read enough Cap stuff. Yeah, at least the JM Zek stuff. I, I mean, now again, that, that was more just because I could never find it anywhere. Yeah, I, I should have loaned you more of my stuff, but I, I've actually accumulated that stuff slowly over time. I, it's not like I ever had it all together all at once. I would pick up an issue here, pick up an issue there to replace the ones I had as a kid, and I, now I look back and I see that I've managed to put together a good chunk of the run without specifically going out and trying to get those issues. Yeah. So yeah, I want to do the Steranko stuff. I want to do. Well, the great thing about the Steranko is it's only a handful of issues. Yeah, it looks like it's only a few. Cool. Maybe we'll start on that tomorrow. <laughs> what else? Um, a few quick things. Um, going back to Avengers: Age of Ultron, um, and I'm, I'm backtracking here a little bit. I, I, the movie did definitely have a lot of problems. There were a lot of pacing and structural problems. And I hope, even though Marvel hasn't done it yet, but I'm hoping we get a director's cut or at least a whole bunch of deleted scenes. When that movie comes out, I think there's more demand for that than than anything else in terms of yeah, the extended yeah. versions. I, we, I think everybody wants to see that because we know there's a lot of stuff we missed out on. Now, having said that, it is still one of my favorite of the Marvel movies because of the amount of fan service. And I've I've sort of I've been ex- trying to explain to some of my friends that I don't rank or I don't grade the Marvel movies the way I grade other movies. Like, I don't approach them the same way I approach a movie like Zero Dark Thirty. Um, and it's because there's so much fan service investment. If I'm approaching the Marvel movies like any other type of movie, like a piece of high art or something, I would say the two best made Marvel movies to date, like, uh, objectively, the best ones are the first Iron Man, which I would say doesn't have an ounce of fat on it. Um, that's just a really tight movie. And probably Guardians of the Galaxy. Surprisingly, even though I had problems with the villain in Guardians of the Galaxy, it had the most emotional resonance. I thought the 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 jokes in Guardians of the Galaxy were funnier than any of the jokes Joss Whedon has come up with. And I thought the emotional beats in Guardians of the Galaxy were more authentic than any of the other movies. But if I'm ranking all 11 of the Marvel movies, like Iron Man and Guardians of the Galaxy come in at number 6 and 7, respectively, because... They didn't give me as much fan service. I didn't have as much invested in those. Age of Ultron gave me so many things that as a kid growing up reading comics, I wanted to see. So I'm much more forgiving of the problems with that movie because of all the great things that it gave me. Stuff like the Scarlet Witch, stuff like Vision, stuff like the Ultron. And yeah, it was just... It's more it's more exciting for me to watch that one. So yeah, I'll go back and I'll watch that multiple times. It, it, it's hard to objectively rank the movies because again, nobody's ever done a Marvel Cinematic Universe before. This is it's like episodic television, but it's not one TV show. It's a whole slew of TV shows, and they all have hundreds of million dollar budgets thrown at them. It's just so big, and it's just so amazing how much they managed to get right in in a task this overwhelming. That it's difficult to objectively review these movies because they're, it's just one great big entity. There isn't even like a single movie to a large degree. It's just one mass of fiction on the mm-hmm. screen. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a new thing. It's, it's hard to qualify it, you know, objectively. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. So, um, but yeah, I am, I'm definitely looking forward to Civil War and I don't think a lot of people were, had some, 
some trepidation and some fear about how crowded it was going to be. There's going to be more characters in this one than there was in Age of Ultron, and a lot of people thought Age of Ultron was too crowded. But I think the difference is not every character in this movie needs to have their own subplot. You don't need Ant-Man to have a story. You don't need Hawkeye to have a story in Civil War. You just need them to fight. Um, I mean, you just, you kind of just need them to say their piece, why they're, why they believe what they believe, and then throw them into an action scene. It's still going to be Captain America's movie. I don't think that is going to get lost in the sea of cameos and guest stars. So, you know, it's a lot like pro wrestling, I think. You know, I mean, it's, it's a movie that's big in terms of its concept because it, it's dealing with some very adult, very sophisticated themes. But then on a practical level, it's a guy you already know versus another guy you already know, fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even the characters that they're introducing, they only have to do cameo type stuff. They're going to introduce Spider-Man and they're going to introduce Black Panther, but the degree to which we introduce those characters is entirely up to the filmmakers. So and from everything I hear, Spider-Man is still more or less a, a cameo with one or two scenes. I, I can't the, imagine the, how they the could. Big int- the big introduction is going to be Black Panther, which I'm looking forward to. Well, I mean, the thing of it is, is there's, and that's why I wasn't afraid of Spider-Man taking over that movie. They just cast the guy. They haven't gone through any kind of weight training, no physical training at all. He hasn't really had a chance to get into that character yet. There's no way they're going to have him have a major role in that movie. And if they do, that'd be a huge misstep on their part and could be something they could tear down the whole movie. That guy ended up being the Jake Lloyd of this Marvel Cinematic Universe. So (laughs) I hope they don't make that particular call. So here's the the thing to to approach that. Part of me still I, I was really convinced of this a couple months ago, and part of me still is, although I'm less sure. I was really sure that they'd already cast him a couple months ago and hadn't let it leak yet. Somehow they had kept it secret because I thought they wanted him. They wanted his scenes filmed before anybody found out because it's a young kid. It's a, it's a child actor and there can be some problems. I thought if they need to fire or replace this guy, they don't want anybody to know that they made that move. So part of me is still thinking, yeah, they, they had this guy cast back in March before they started filming. I could be wrong. It's possible that they just, like, they just signed him on last week and put him on, on the, the sound stage or whatever they did earlier. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, unless, um, unless all of his action is CGI, though, it takes time to get to a point where you can make a superhero movie. They can't just cast you and boom, you're in there. Mm-hmm. Although, and this, again, this is pure speculation. I've also been feeling this way for a couple months. I think we might get Spider-Man in a post-credit scene of Ant-Man. I'm hearing that they're supposed to have some reference, but I'm trying to avoid spoilers. They're, they're, yeah, I, it's I, gotten I bad with Ant-Man now too. So, but I'm thinking in terms of hedging their bets, if they don't think as many people are going to go see Ant-Man, if they can say, "Hey, this is the first time you get to see the Marvel Spider-Man." That might get some people – like the way people went to see movies just for the trailer to The Phantom Menace back in 1999. People might go buy a ticket to Ant-Man just to see the post credit scene with Spider-Man. Now, with how easy it will be to get that scene downloaded illegally online, that might not work. But it wouldn't surprise me if we get a Spider-Man cameo at the end of this movie, even if it's just, even if it's just like CGI, him in the costume swinging by. Well, and even then, it, I'm not sure – how excited people really genuinely are about Spider-Man at this point. You know, I just don't think he's the draw that he was for people. I think they've made so many movies and so many bad movies at this point that while he, he unquestionably still has the fans, I don't know that there's the level of excitement about around that, that there would have been had we not already gone through five Spider-Man movies. I, 
I think internationally, the symbol of Spider-Man is still pretty powerful. I think, I think domestic audiences are a lot more kind of burned out. Um, and I, I don't know what the box office internationally was for Amazing Spider-Man 2, but I still think as a cultural icon and symbol overseas, I still think he's got some game. I oh, still think no, he's no question. probably uh, the Amazing most- Spider-Man 2 made most of its money overseas. Yeah, oh yeah, a lot. So many movies do now. Like you look at the fucking fourth Transformers movie, which I didn't even see. I think that made the least amount of money of the franchise here in the sea in the United States, and made over a billion dollars in China. Yeah. So, oh my god, Jurassic World is making so much money, and it's such a dumb movie. <laughs> I didn't see it. Thank God. Did you see the first one in 1993? Yeah. Then you've seen this one. Okay. It's the exact same goddamn movie. It's just bigger and louder. <laughs> and and no kidding the worst part is the acting especially by chris pratt he is so bad in this movie like all of the charm and all of the the cred that he built up in guardians of the galaxy he is so bad in this movie it's it, the part should not have gone to him it's not written for you bring chris pratt in because you want that sort of lovable charm and that wit this character should have been like uh, an 80s action star. It's a total straight man character. It's like Bruce Willis during the, the Die Hard with a Vengeance era. But so it's, yeah, he, he, he tries to play it straight and it doesn't work and he tries to drop lines that are bad jokes and they fall flat. It's it, the, 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 the human characters are the worst part of the movie. Um, so it's definitely a Jurassic Park film then. It's, and having said all of that, it's still the second best of the four Jurassic Park movies, which. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I hate dinosaurs. <laughs> I, I've heard you say that before. Fuck dinosaurs. <laughs> Fuck dinosaurs. So, okay, we we keep losing track. Uh, was there any other stuff uh, that you need for Captain yeah, America? Yeah, well, I think what it is they they know that Hugo huh? Weaving doesn't want to come back, and uh, I think what it is they're probably waiting to bring Red Skull back either when they need him or when they have a new Cap, and then they can introduce a new Skull and a new Cap at the same time, basically. Well, I heard that they're not going to do reboots for their movies. I don't think they're going to do reboots, but eventually if they recast the actor, then it, if they've recast Cap, it's more okay to recast Red Skull as well. Because uh, I, I remember I was just reading where they, they were kind of uh, – I don't want to say bashing Sony for rebooting so quickly, but they're like, you don't reboot. You just keep telling stories. You do it like a James Bond. You, you use the same character. You just have different actors portraying him. Yeah, it was like, well, okay. like I mean, on, on – to, to me, that would be extremely hard to pull off with Iron Man because I'm, I'm sorry, dude, but uh, Robert Downey Jr. will always be Iron Man. I just cannot see someone else picking up that role. He he just – I don't know. I still we kind of think Iron Colin Man Farrell might be able to pull it and, off. Huh? I still kind of think Colin Farrell might be able to pull it off. Who? Colin Farrell. I don't think so, dude. There's – Dude, that there's some scenes where he's like his little snarkiness, and it's just it fits so perfect. I'm just like, holy shit, he captured it. I like, think that they, like I'm you said with the bonds, I, I think like you said with the bonds, I I don't think I wouldn't want to put Sean Connery and uh, who's the new, who's the current guy, what? the current I Bond. Sorry, it's kind of hard to hear you sometimes. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who's currently playing Bond. Oh, um, oh shit, the dude from Layered Cake. Um. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. Okay. I wouldn't want to put Sean Connery and Daniel Craig in the same room because Connery is going to have way more charisma than Daniel Craig. But Craig can do but the physical doesn't... stuff a lot better, and he's he's more – he sells the killer of, in Bond more than see, Sean see, Connery ever but could. See, that's, that's a little bit apples and oranges because Connery's Bond is more – I don't want to say goofy, but a little more playful. 
where Craig's bond is a thug almost like he's you, when you're watching the movies, he's kind of at the end of his rope, but like he doesn't have that snappy, you know, that snappy fight left in him. He kind of gets a little dirty sometimes with his fights. Uh-huh. You know, he's a little more thuggish. Which I, you know, I liked. Yeah, well, that's just I, it. Never, They're both never, James Bond. All the Bonds, dude, I've never been a Connery fan, dude. Mm-hmm. I thought his Bond was okay. I've been a Roger Moore fan. I thought Roger Moore's Bond was fun. Well, I think that's part of how we grew up, too. Because he was the Bond huh? when we were growing up. So we're obviously going to favor the one that we were introduced true, to Bond through. True, But I don't know. I just, Sean Connery, I don't know. That just was never my bunch. Uh, neither was uh, – Timothy Dalton was okay for Bond. The Dalton was a good Bond in bad movies. Yeah, okay. I'll give you that. What did you think about, uh, what's his name, Remington Steele? Oh, uh, I actually like Pierce Brosnan. I just, again, I really enjoyed GoldenEye. That was the one good one, and the other movies just weren't up to that same caliber in terms of quality. But I thought he was fine oh, as okay. Bond. But that, that's kind of the point, though, is that each one of these guys were still James Bond, but they all had their own flavor or their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think so you, you could think possibly you do that with Iron with Man. Tony Stark? Yeah, I think you could do that with Tony Stark, too. Like, let's say, know, let's say you have Colin Farrell. Farrell would have a different, he would be able to still do some of the sarcasm and some of the, uh, but he's, more of a classically handsome guy he might be a better uh to sell the physical aspects when tony's out of the armor or he might just be more willing to be in the armor which has been a problem with the iron man movies is down he wants to spend less and less time in the armor so if you got a guy yeah. who's willing to spend more time i would enjoy seeing an iron man movie rather than a robert downey jr you know being sarcastic movie okay well, I, I guess i mean we'll see they're gonna have to because eventually they're gonna run out of like their story arc it's it's this is their you know 16 issue summer special so they're gonna have to do something after infinity gauntlet like i know well, what you're saying like yeah. Well, someone was telling me their theory is at the very end, the gauntlet will go, you know, will basically just kind of whitewash the universe. And all of a sudden you're going to have these new Marvel characters at the end. Yeah, that was these my theory. People playing the Marvel characters. <laughs> that was, was my theory. Ultimate universe. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that they've already done the Iron Man, though. I think that the first three Iron Man movies is his arc. And now that's why he's guest appearing in other people's movies because they've told the Tony Stark story and they won't do more Iron Man movies until they have a new Iron Man actor, I think. Yeah, because someone was telling me, I'm like, I'm like, that's, it's just, it's too comic booky. Like, okay, someone got the gauntlet and I wish the world was better. And all of a sudden, poof, you know, we're going to have new actors, younger actors, you know, whoever's hot in, in Hollywood right now portraying these characters. And well, the thing you'll have to remember, though, is by the cool. time the second Infinity Gauntlet movie comes out, uh, Robert Downey Jr. will have aged 12 years. That's No, I mean, it, in a way, it works for me because if you like that universe, you can watch all the movies in that universe and then stop. Well, I don't you think don't you like need a new universe. I think you could just use it as an opportunity to recast. You just have, you know, an, uh, a, you don't have to even recast I mean, it's, everybody. Dude, it's, 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 it's that whole fucking multi-universe. You, you watch it all the way in. The very end, Gauntlet explodes, boom, new Marvel Universe, new actors, and you're like, okay, I can walk away. I'm complete. Or the new person can be like, well, I'm going to watch this new stuff because we know what Cap's origins were, and this Cap's a little different. Or, you know, it's – it's, I don't know. We'll see. It's yeah. it's a long way from here, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, wow, we got kind of off track, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were talking about Big villains. Did you, fi- did you finish talking about the villains you want to talk about? I was going to jump – once I got kind of tired of the run of Avengers I'm reading now mm-hmm. or before they ever change creators again and it starts to get super shitty, which inevitably it will. Yeah. Um, I was going to skip and do some of the – was it the Mark Miller Avengers stuff you guys were talking about that was good? Uh, oh, Mark Miller's Ultimates? No. Okay, because if, if that will be very entertaining because uh, – No, Jeff, was it Jeff Johns? Jeff, I like Jeff Johns' run, yeah. I enjoyed that. 
But that's a pretty big jump, dude. You're going from like a couple hundred issues into the series to the very last, the penultimate run of the book. Because I think so? it was Chuck Austin. No, Chuck Austin and Brian Bendis. They were the ones who closed out the series. Uh, the Bendis run. Yeah, Bendis was the final one, but Chuck Austin was writing it before Bendis took over. Bendis only did like three or four issues before it ended, and he started over again as New Avengers. So how the fuck do I even find this on here? Is that Avengers World, Avengers Slash Invaders, Avengers Thunderbolts, Avengers <laughs> Earth Mightiest Heroes 2004-2005, Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes 2010, Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes 2 2006-2007, Heroes Welcome, Prime, Roll Call, Solo, Children's Crusade, Children's Crusade slash Young Avengers? The fuck, dude? <laughs> Thankfully, you're still in Avengers Volume 1 if you're looking for the Jeff Johns run. And in fact, he did that with initially with Kieran Dwyer. Okay, so let me get back to there. Um, so Avengers 98 to 2004? No, no. 2012 Aven- to present? Uh, no, I'm saying the first volume of Avengers, the original volume of Avengers that ran yeah, for 400 it, issues. That's where the stuff we were just talking about is at. Jeff Johns no, is part of that. No, it's a 63 to 96, and then 96 right, right, to 97. Right. Huh? Oh, oh, yeah, you're right. Fuck, I forgot about Heroes Reborn. Yeah, yeah, because eventually what happened is the uh the 97 series that Perez and Buzik did that got renumbered with legacy numbering to become 400. Because what happened is they went back to the le- they went to the legacy numbering I think during Jeff Johns's run, and then they 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 ended the series with issue 400 or 600 something like that, and and then started with New Avengers at, at an entirely new numbering. Holy shit. I yeah, know. like scrolling through here, so I click on this one. So this is the uh, Buzik Perez stuff. So it starts number one, and it goes all the way to probably the fifties, right? Before they switch, start switching that numbering to legacy. It goes seventy six, seventy nine. <laughs> so it jumps from seventy six to seven. No, seventy eight is the row above it. So once so yes, that's another problem. Is even the the numbering isn't necessarily sequential. Sometimes you look around and you'll find a missing issue completely in the wrong place. So here, here's what it does: it goes eighty three, five hundred, eighty four, five oh. 1-502-503. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if, if you ever do get into that, let me know, and I can try to guide you through that if you don't work it out on your own. But you're better off going to someplace like, uh, uh, what the fuck is it called? Grand Comic Database or Comic Vine to see the actual reading order. Crazy, man. Yeah, I know. It got the weird Bendis there. The Bendis run. Hey, I'm going to finally read the Bendis run. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll read see, some Matt Fraction you, Iron Man. That's the thing, though. You are exactly the wrong person to read Mark Miller or uh, um, Bendis because you're the exact guy that was ranting about Avengers comics in that time period. No. You weren't even no. reading those comics, but you are totally that guy. You are that guy. Trust me. When you read those books, it's going to be very frustrating. You're going to make a lot of the same points that people were making in the aughts. They were Avengers fans who were still reading the book and then Bendis turned it into something else entirely. No, no, no. I, okay. So I didn't mean the Bendis run. I meant the uh, Jeff, Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns. Yeah. yeah I, and I think you'll like Jeff Johns. I hope you do. I liked it. If it's on here, holy shit. I think it is. Was that after uh... – what about the Hickman run? No, no, no. That's a whole different series. That's from recent years. These that's, are all just that, and I can't even. I can't tell you what the hell is going off the Hickman run. He did like the main Avengers book. He did Avengers World. He's doing the newer New Avengers, which isn't the same as the New Avengers. Um, they're basically the Illuminati, but they call them New Avengers because every Marvel superhero team has to be called Avengers now, or they don't sell. Uh, I can't even remember all the books that Hickman's done that are Avengers. So did uh, Mark Miller take over after Buzik left? Mark Miller is the guy who did Ultimates. After Buzik left, it was Jeff Johns. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. Shit. You keep dude. doing that. God damn it. I'm mixing up all my uh, – People who uh, came after you. 
<laughs> all my fixitisms that I have. No, 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 no. Later on in the uh, in the in the Bindus run essay. <laughs> now I'm just clicking around on Marvel Unlimited. I'm down in a Marvel Unlimited rabbit hole now. <laughs> okay, I gotta pull you out then. Okay. You mentioned the trading card set. You reminded me a couple months ago. I had this sort of nostalgic burst where I remembered that a lot of my knowledge of the of the Marvel universe outside of X Men started with the trading cards. I remembered particularly fondly the 1992 series by Impel. I think that was the um, second one, right? Yeah, I think that was the second the second series. That, that was the best um, one they did, I think. And then and then I think Tops got the line and they did their Marvel Masterworks or Masterpieces, which were much more painted. But I remember these cards and I found actually somebody was selling them on eBay, like the complete two hundred card set for like six bucks. So I suppose I I got that. I think I paid with shipping, I paid like eleven or twelve dollars. And I started like flipping through these. I was like, Oh man, I love these cards. And I was like, This is where I learned who Ant Man was. It was mm-hmm. from this card. This is where I learned who Darkhawk and a lot of these other characters and it, it you really see who which characters they were favoring at that time. Oh, sure. Like I don't I don't think Hawkeye got a card in this. I think Hank Pym and Wasp got a card like it was a team up Ant Man and Wasp. Like neither of their solo characters got a card in this set. But you know, Ghost Rider had a lot of cards. Nomad mm-hmm. got cards. Yeah, it was funny. So I was just like kind of like scrolling well, back through this. I was like, yeah, oh man, it- this is where I learned who these guys were before I got the comics. Because when I when I was first starting, I only had a few dollars. So I bought what I knew I liked, which was Batman and X-Men. And it was only later when I could branch out and get more of those. I did it based on which cards I thought were cool. With me, it was Marvel Universe Handbooks and Marvel mm-hmm. Saga. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that thing that hooks you in, the trading cards, Marvel was very effective at hooking you in with those trading cards because it, it gave you a great piece of artwork. It was really stylishly done. Give you just enough about the character on the back so that you got a sense of who they were and could compel you to want to check them out. Or if nothing else, at least you'd be familiar with them when they popped up another book and you'd be like, hey, that's Nomad, as opposed <laughs> to who's the jerkwad with the sunglasses on. Uh, and, Johnny, and Bla- oh, that was that was when Johnny Blaze was separate from Ghost Rider, right? Because Ghost Rider was Johnny, it was Danny Ketch. So I, so yeah, when I first found out about Ghost Rider, I thought Johnny Blaze was a completely separate character. And when they start mentioning Johnny Blaze as Ghost Rider, I was like, how did? When does he become Ghost Rider? Are you talking about the second series or the third series? This is the one with the nice borders. Is this the one where they had the star background? This was the, the one with the star background. Okay, and then they actually, had the cool custom cut, like you had part of a background image, and then they would custom cut it out, and then the background would be nothing but stars. Yeah, and okay. you could actually line them up so it was like a starscape. So you right. could do it like 10 across, 20 down or something mm-hmm. yeah. and make like these whole big poster-sized sheets. Yeah, because I don't think that the Johnny Blaze thing had happened yet for Series 2 because that's the one I had in my head initially. And if I remember correctly, the series you're talking about, they had the Mark Texera art too. And I was always a big yeah. Tex fan, so I enjoyed those. See, they'd lost the image guys by that point, so they, I don't think the art quality was quite as good, but they made up for it with that smart design work. Whereas on the first, and se- especially the second series, you had the big guys of the time. You had Jim Lee doing work you had i think mcfarlane did some stuff you had the image guys back when that was a good thing I'm trying to think if jim lee was doing any of these cards i know eric well, larson the entire eric, eric larson drew the spider-man who was on the first card mm-hmm. um yeah i believe that i believe that jim lee did some but even if he didn't he also did the x-men series and yeah. the, the entire series which he he recognized in retrospect was a really bad idea for him to do but i still that, that was a great set at the time all right, I got the Jeff Johns run start, so I'm going to go ahead and just add that to library. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Ron Garney did a lot of the mar- – and I'm not saying Ron Garney was a bad Captain America artist. I really liked his work, but I'm trying to think who succeeded Ron Garney during like the Mark Wade issues. Kubert. Was it Andy Kubert? Yeah. Was it Adam or Andy Kubert? I don't recall. One of the I, I have trouble telling those two guys apart, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, I could, I could probably tell if I had side-by-side comparisons, but yeah. They both look like their dad mixed with Jim Lee, so I have trouble. I mean, if I'm looking at 
two images and one's by one or one's at the other. I can kind of maybe kind of work it out, but yeah. just, uh, just in general, no, they're the same guy. They might as well be, you know, a Siamese twins for all I'm concerned. I remember there was a time when one was drawing X-Men and one was drawing X-Force or Uncanny yeah, X-Men. One definitely has really... a little bit smoother, more cartoony style, and one's a little yeah. bit more rough. Uh, not not rough as in his drawing style, but more lines, basically, more yeah, cross-hatching. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't think of, like, aside from the obvious. It, it was the one that worked with Mark Wade on Kazar, so it probably was the one that was a little smoother and more cartoony. Okay, I think Andy Kubert is older, and I think he's been in the biz longer, so it's, I'm, I'm going to say it was Andy Kubert. Um, short of that, uh, yeah, I can't think of so, well, really... so wait, did you actually like him or not like him? Oh, it was fine. I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember. I, I'm, I'm having trouble establishing relevancy <laughs> to this. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm trying, I'm just barreling through like the, the artists that I know. Yeah. I oh, okay. I think well, was... yeah, I, I think you've. You're good with Reifeld. If you, you know, if it's that big of a reach, then don't worry about it. It's, it's not, it's not worth it. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. It, like, and again, I would need to go back through the Grunewald eras and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't remember as much from like the eighties. Um, who was doing it with Steve Englehart? That was in the Mike Zeka era. That was, Mike no, Zeka was no, like James Demateus. Yeah. That was a good run. Yes, it was. Jam, that's one of my favorite. That's, that's actually my favorite, I would say, probably. And that, oh. and again, it's the same reason as you. It's because those are the guys that made me love Captain America. So yeah. I'm always going to have more of a heart for those guys than I could for anybody else because they're the ones who made me love the character in the first place. I yeah, I read that recently and I really liked. Ah, oh, that's okay. That in terms of like the the classical Captain America, ah, oh, they were really good. I I liked it right up until ah, oh, there was like one story arc where where I when. Something was going on with Baron Zemo. It was basically when they were killing off Red Skull. And yeah, the, the last arc that Dematisse did. Yeah, yeah. The one that Jim Shooter rewrote and, and altered all of his storylines and caused him to jump off the book entirely. And that's probably why I hated that last story. Well, that and uh, it was drawn by Paul Neary, too, who was the artist that made me stop reading that run prematurely. That's right. I remember the big jump in, in art style there. Yeah, I, I could I couldn't roll with that. I couldn't handle it. I didn't I didn't read those issues. I've yet to this day read those issues because of Paul Neary specifically. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, he actually got better as the as he progressed working on the character, but at that particular point in time, it just felt completely off and wrong and totally turned me off. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of artists, I can't think of anything else. Like, I would have to maybe look at like an Avengers artist that I just didn't like the way he drew Cap, but I, that's not on the Cap specific run. So, yeah, yeah, I, I can't, I can't give you anybody else who just makes me laugh at the thought of it than than Liefeld. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it, that's a pretty good call. I, I tend honestly, I tend to block out that run though because it was so ultimately insignificant, uh, and also because I really liked the second half after Wildstorm took over and they put uh, James Robinson and Joe Bennett on the book, and I quite liked their little run of six issues. Yeah, Joe Bennett he he worked on the uh, the Cap and Falcon series by Priest. He, sure, didn't he? he, he made it good because when yeah. Bart Sears was drawing it, it was incomprehensible, and yeah. I was on the verge of dropping it, and then he came on and he made that book readable. Yeah, and then actually more than readable. Being... I, I, I'm undermining it by that. He I, I enjoyed the book, but before that, it wasn't even readable. Right. Yeah, but then yep. I mean, it wasn't. I don't think it was even long after that because uh, disassembled kind of capped oh, that completely. Yeah. Well, I actually no. Disassembled was a lot 
further out than you might think. Disassembled came after the Dan Jurgens run, so you're you're talking because uh, that's what finished. If I remember correctly, wasn't the book only up. like four? Wasn't the book was only like twenty issues, wasn't it? Wait, okay, are we talking about? Oh man, okay, this I'm trying to remember the the timeline because the uh, Heroes Reborn was the twelve issues. Then you had Garney and Wade come back for. Uh, 12 issues, and then Kubert did another 12. Then Dan Jurgens did it. He wrapped up a run with 50. <sighs> Which run did he complete then? Because Robert Kirkman did the disassembled storyline in Captain America with Scott Eaton. And I'm trying to remember oh, okay. what series that was, though, because it wasn't its own solo series. It was it was a continuation of a book that preexisted. Was it? Uh, but it had to be before Brubaker. I, yeah, I, I honestly, I do not remember. I have no idea what the hell happened there. Maybe no, I don't know. I'd have to go look. I, but I, because I, I enjoyed that story arc as well. A very strong '80s nostalgia vibe coming off of Kirkman's four issue run during Disassembled. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm looking at the issues again. I, it looks like Captain America and the Falcon. I I think it was only 14 issues. At least that's all. Oh, I have. oh just that specific series. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. that's right. Because uh, Dan Jurgens and Nelson right, finished this, it. Yeah, Disassembled was like five through seven or something. Oh, so was that Captain the Falcon then? Yeah, and it started with Bart Sears. He did like the first four issues. No, Joe see, Bennett. I'm getting confused because you, you're mentioning Disassembled, and I know that Disassembled was a there was a four issue arc that tied into that. It was in a Captain America title. It was by Kirkman and Ayton. Okay, so you, he the Disassembled was in both. Disassembled was in oh, Captain America, it and was, it was in Captain America and Falcon. So what it was, both, he finished the Night series. Then is that that's what happened, isn't it? Yeah, that must have been the Marvel Night series, and then also um, because it was actually a pretty interesting tie-in because Christopher Priest was working on a story arc involving a relationship between Cap and Scarlet Witch, just mm-hmm. as she was going nuts and disassembled, and they played with that in in the Calf series as we called it, Captain American Falcon, yeah. uh, and it was it was actually the best for me. It was it was it was a good tie-in because it actually worked more closely with this symbol than any of the other ones did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, screw with my chronology there, though. Damn. Yeah, so he finished the Night series. Okay, now I remember. Right. But anyway, yeah, Joe Bennett, that's a guy who's really underrated. I, I thought his run on Birds of Prey was great, and he's one of those guys that I'm just perfectly happy to have on any book that he wants to take on, but nobody ever seems to, like, pimp him at all in in comics. Yeah. Yeah, I'm flipping through something. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, he had – this was a good set of stories during this cap run. <laughs> Um, okay. Okay, I know. Got, got you off track again. Okay. Uh, that's what I remember. Uh, if there were other questions, I can't remember. So you can just use my old responses from the other session. Uh, and just as a treat, here is my re-recorded readings of the two German officers from the first page of Captain America, issue one. It was easy joining the army with the forged papers. Now to carry out the Führer's plans. Yeah, everything is in readiness. Mm-hmm. Captain America 